bangly bang on the Empire Podcast this week. We're up, up and away in a lovely hot air balloon with Felicity Jones, star of The Aeronauts. Now having made the film, I never want to go in balloon ever again. Okay. I've been scarred. And we pay homage to the king of the king. Yes, the director of the king, David Michaud. It's always nice to bring people that you've loved working with in the past back into your life and yeah. basically paying them to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> All that and more on the movie podcast that is coming to you a day after Halloween and really hopes that most of you haven't been killed in your sleep by masked <laughs> maniacs because that would frankly, our few figures would plummet. Plummet. Y- what you think that masked maniacs would specifically target our listeners? Well, why not? Uh, they are the best people. They are the very mm, finest people and let's be honest, most of them are virgins. Hello pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. What? Oh my God. (laughs) Totally fine. People turning off in droves, you monster. (laughs) Hello, Ford. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, This week, well, I'm not joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. I'm not joined by four colleagues of such lethal cunning. I'm not even joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning due to what I can only describe as a scheduling snafu. <laughs> a workpocalypse. Yeah. I don't know what's happened, if, if I'm honest with you, but uh, this is one of the few occasions in the podcast history where there's just two of us in the pod booth. It's myself, and as you can already hear, our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. I Helen, don't... how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm, I'm dressed for Halloween. We're recording on Halloween, so I've worn all black apart from my Audrey 2 necklace. I felt like I'd get Ooh, in the spirit. That's nice. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I didn't notice before because I didn't want to, you know, because no, uh, yeah. I respect you as a person. Thanks. I didn't want to look at that area. Sure. Anything below the neck is anything, just like verboten. I'm very much, especially in these times, mm-hmm. anything below the eyebrows wow. and I'm in okay. trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Even now I'm making eye contact and I'm not sure that I, I, I should be doing I'm, that. I'm just, I'm glad I groomed my eyebrows in that case. <laughs> my God. You missed a bit. Shit. <laughs> Anyway, this is going to be an even more shambolic Empire podcast than usual because uh, I've been so busy being an international jet-setting playboy um, that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that I haven't had time to really prepare for this week's podcast. Uh, have you? Oh, obviously. it was meant to be not. tomorrow and then you had a thing and then I, I had a thing, thing yeah, and then we yeah. had to bring this forward a little bit. So we're all a little bit, ah, uh, and I'm not prepared at all for Halloween. Although, thankfully, I live in an apartment block, mm. and so therefore, I, we tend to not really get a lot of trick-or-treaters. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping as well, because yeah. I ain't got nothing for them. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, no, that's a lie. I have some, but I'm planning to eat it myself. What have you got? I've What's got there? some um, some Hotel Chocolat, Chocolats, <laughs> and I also have some of the little M&S um, yeah, <laughs> fizzy bat things. That's the most middle-class thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that's extraordinary. Uh, are you a Halloween person, Hill? Are you um, um I Halloween? Um, I'm not very good at costumes. They always seem a bit scary and, and difficult and time consuming. What's the point? And also I never get invited to any parties anymore. It's fine. Of course you do. You are a social Social butterfly, that's me. Yeah. yeah. No, I, it, I I like Halloween as a concept. We watched Hocus Pocus the other night, so you know, I'm very much in the spirit. And of course, tonight we come into the season of Nightmare Before Christmas. And for the next two months, whenever you wish, you can watch The Nightmare Before Christmas, which yes. is wonderful. Well, one month and, and 24 days. Really. It's only like 78 minutes or something. I know, like so you, you can, can watch, watch it, it loads. Yeah. You can watch it twice in the night if yeah. you so desire. It's entirely Brilliant. up to you. I don't have any Halloween plans. I had been invited to see Paddy Considine's band, Riding the Low. They're playing in London, but I, um, I couldn't make it. So that's a shame. But, uh, but I don't do, I'm not a big Halloween guy. 
I have other stuff going on, but I don't have. I'm I'm not a big. You're more of the the thing guy, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Now we're talking. <laughs> now we are talking. Uh, so I don't expect to see a lot of trick or treaters. But of course, if anyone does come around to your house asking for a trick or a treat, don't invite them in, Helen, in case they turn out to be a vampire. And as you know, once oh, you true. invite a vampire into mm-hmm. your home, mm-hmm. they have the run of the place. Well, it depends really on what kind of vampire legend you're talking about there, doesn't it, Chris? I mean, actually. You know, Bucky, Buffy, obviously. Bucky. Bucky. <laughs> You've always Freudian, got Freudian. Bucky and Steve on your mind. <laughs> um, no, but Buffy is always about, you know, the inviting them in rule and they can actually sort of re-enchant the house once you've accidentally invi- invited a vampire in to kind of lock them out again. Mm-hmm. But some of the other legends are not quite so stuck on the whole in- invitational thing. Yes, because Bram Stoker made a lot of it up. Well, exactly. Mad Irishman was, I believe, the um, attribution for him in uh, in the Anne Rice novels. So, um, you know, it's right. it's it's varied. Obviously, I don't want to give away any of your your storytelling secrets, lest you be working on a novel or a script, and you are the next big thing in Hollywood. But if you were <laughs> if you were to do a vampire movie, right, so, and you had to create one bit of lore, make oh, it up, interesting, fresh, what would it be? I mean, I quite like the ones where they come up with some ridiculous new weakness. Mm -hmm. You know, so like in recent years, and this is about the last 20 years, suddenly vampires are allergic to silver, which has always been a werewolf thing before. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then like um, the vampire diaries, obviously they brought in um, vervain, I think was the the herb that you can, that is like bad for vampires. Mm. So it'd be quite nice if it was like a pleasant smelling herb of some sort that was bad for vampires. So like, I don't know, Mm. lavender or like bergamot or vetiver or something that like rosemary something that actually smells nice and you wouldn't mind wearing around your neck as opposed to some of the stuff that they have to resort to in like Buffy and Supernatural and things like that because they always have bags full of like sulfur and shit around their neck and that's not going to smell good is it no it's not so I feel like that's that's what you need you need a nice smelling herb that nevertheless keeps away vampires I like that um I'm going to introduce one sure which is vampires once they come into your house okay can go anywhere except the toilet I mean, they wouldn't need the toilet, presumably. Yeah, but it gives you a safe haven, doesn't it? Oh, I see. That's you clever. See? Why wouldn't they be able to, though? Because it's rude. <laughs> I also like, by the way... <laughs> I think this is, this is obvious. You're sitting <laughs> of there... Of course, of course. You're sitting there enjoying some alone time, and in walks a fucking vampire. He would not be happy, and no, the vampire would go, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, and would leave. But it's okay for them to be in your bedroom. Well, the bedroom's not always a place of, you know, of, of sexual escapades, is it? Uh, it's it's sometimes a place, for example, I work in my bedroom as well. So oh, okay. a vampire could come in and go, what are you working on? And you'd say, oh, I'm, I'm writing this piece at the moment. Sure. So, you know, uh, so that would be totally fine. Your and also, I guess totally, if, if it is sexual, yeah. then vampires are pretty sexy in theory. They are so, you very know. sexual. They say, can I join in? And I go, yeah, because I'm nearly done here, quite <laughs> frankly. So <laughs> you just <laughs> take up oh, my, my slack. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Um, and you know, the kitchen... Totally fine. Vampire wants, vampire wants to come in. Obviously, garlic's mm. off the off the menu. Do you know what? That's actually quite good because actually yeah. in the kitchen you might be able to fight them because a lot of vampires are actually mm-hmm. physically weakened or physically discommoded by human food. So you could like stuff food in their mouth in the hope of fighting them off. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like people don't do this enough. I feel they don't. I feel they don't. Right. So uh, we uh, have some questions. Hooray. Do you want to hear some questions? Yeah. So here is a question from Twitter, and it comes from one of our most loyal listeners, a Norwegian lady. Yes, a Norwegian lady called Ronog 
RH, and I hope I've pronounced your name correctly. And I hope that you're Norwegian. I think you are. I don't know why I assume that, but I think you are. Anyway, she asks, I have this image in my mind. You guys have flats filled with books. Hello, Helen. <laughs> but do you also have a DVD BD collection? And, uh, BD, BD, BD. BD, BD. And if so, what is your most prized <laughs> slash feud film? Or is it streaming services all the way? No, I still absolutely have a, a DVD and Blu-ray collection. And I do find it useful because, for example, when I was working on the superhero book, there was stuff that I knew I'd seen on streaming services. And I'm like, oh, I don't have to worry about seeing that film. I know that's on one of the streaming services. And it wasn't. And so I had to kind of, you know, scramble about sometimes when I had kind of left things to, with only a few days to write a particular entry to try and get hold of it, which was immensely inconvenient. That's yeah. not good. It wasn't. Um, so I do value having physical media for that purpose. And also I like them because they look pretty. I've said this before and it has been extremely controversial, but I'm going to say it again anyway. My DVDs are colour-coded by spine. It's very upsetting to people, including my librarian sister, but at the same time, it looks pretty on my shelves. And I don't think we can underestimate how important that is. I also have another, I don't know, four or five or more... Bookcases full of books. There we go. Bloody hell. It's all happening. Yeah. It's yeah. all ruddy happening. You have a room with mostly bookshelves. Yeah, I do. I don't want to boast. I got, I got some books. <laughs> Are they leather bound? I got some DVDs. Does I got it smell some of rich mahogany? <laughs> yeah, it does. I'm kind of a big deal. Uh, what is my most prized slash mm. feud possession? I don't know about prize or feud actually because I don't know how many times I return to the well but it's nice to know mm. that you have stuff yeah 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 it's nice to know that I have still have the region one DVD of The Hidden which is a great action sci-fi flick from the 80s um, and it is available on the iTunes store but really expensive uh, so it's nice to know I, I still have mm -hmm. that and I can watch it if I need to I have the leather bound genuinely <laughs> leather or maybe fake leather I don't know but the big giant leather bound boxed Sandman comics they're gorgeous. And the first one I brought in once when we interviewed Neil Gaiman and I got it signed and he drew me a Sandman inside. And I think that would be one of the things I might try to rescue if the house was on fire. Oh, really? Only problem being it's super heavy and would probably stop me getting out of the house right. safely. I'm going to turn this question around then. So that, okay, let's say your house is burning down. Mm. What, what, what do you save? Well, I, I genuinely, I would be tempted by those, but they might stop me from getting out at all which is a slight worry it is um, I'd have to save my laptop because my entire working life is on it do you not um, back up to the cloud let's say yes in case anyone <laughs> steals it I, uh, what do I have that's really like a really oh my god if that, that's gone then I'll never forgive myself uh, my wife obviously sure and that's pretty much it mm. to be honest everything else could be replaced just possessions that's, that's so, true. Really? so true so um, true oh no wait my diehard box set that's shaped in like the Nakatomi <laughs> Plaza I would I would save that I would save that and who could blame me but that's pretty much it I think everything else would just be um, would, would be gone I've also got Firefly signed by Joss Whedon and the West Wing signed by Toby Ziegler so I'd probably save both of those well yeah that's priceless yeah it's priceless stuff uh, here's a question from at Lucas Hill Paul Lucas H. Paul on Twitter how can we ensure old films have a future now that Disney is starting to lock Fox's back catalogue into their fault mm. and this is uh, a response to stories this week that Disney is beginning to certainly stop uh, repertory theatres and cinemas in the US and the UK from screening the likes of Aliens and Die Hard and Alien, which were kind of staples of 
the Prince Charles Cinema, for example, mm-hmm. over here in London, that would show all these old 70 millimeter prints and 35 millimeter prints of those classic uh, Fox movies. But uh, strangely enough, Disney don't seem to license their movies for use in second run theaters or repertory cinemas, uh, which is really frustrating. Mm. And now they seem to be applying that to Fox movies also. And naturally, and rightly, that's attracted some criticism. Yeah, I think this is this is worrying. And I hope that, you know, this is some kind of essentially taking stock and that they actually rethink this as a, as a kind of permanent policy, because that would be really upsetting if a lot of these films weren't available in those kind of cinemas. Um, not least because I think having big titles like that to show now and again keeps those cinemas ticking over and then they can afford to take risks on slightly less tried stuff. Um, so fingers crossed that, that something has worked out here. But in terms of old films availability in general, I think it, it is actually quite worrying times in that respect. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, th- there was a statistic that only about half as many films were ever released on DVD as were released on VHS. Mm-hmm. And I think it's... Blu-ray less. Blu-ray still. even yep. less. I, I, would, I would be surprised if it's even half. I would, I would suspect it's more like a, a third or a quarter. So th- there is a, a real kind of problem of getting hold of, of old films, which is ironic given that in theory we should be able to... The, you know, the, the barriers to release and the barriers to distribution should be lower than they have ever been in history. You should be able to put digital copies copies of these things on streaming platforms at the drop of a hat. I mean, you know, yep. HBO Max, you know, there was a big announcement about that launching this week in the States. <laughs> it'll and have every DC movie. It'll have every DC movie. Um, but it'll have, you know, they were advertising a huge range of something like 1,800 films. And it's like, well, that is less than your corner DVD shop would have had 20 years ago. That yeah. is, you know, that's not that many films. Netflix and Amazon Prime should be filled with movies from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, I'm going to throw in the 60s and the 70s as well. You go crazy. And, and maybe even the 10s and the 20s. What? I know. Crazy, right? But they're not. No. And the choice of old, and by old, <laughs> I'm going to say stuff made pre-1970, all right? Yeah. That's old for me. To be and honest, I, I, even I, stuff made pre-1980, I think, Well, I know, point, I realise there are people listening to this podcast who will be... Yeah. Very much of the, I've never seen Die Hard because that's an old movie, or I've never seen Battle of the Future. All right, Why Peter would I Parker. See that? Precisely. But he at least takes interest in these movies, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He at least watches Aliens and The Empire Strikes Back, and you know he, li- he likes that sort of stuff. A friend of ours recently said that she was working with someone who refused to watch Back to the Future, one of the great movies. Oh my God. One of the perfect screenplay, oh my because God. it was, and I quote, an old movie. And, oh boy! Okay, that's your fault. You're shutting yourself off to an amazing experience. Yeah. But uh, that stuff's on Netflix and Amazon Prime. But the fact remains that, for example, I have been desperate mm-hmm. the last year or so. I don't know why, but desperate to watch the Hot Rock, which is the Robert Redford 1970s heist movie. Really fun heist movie. Saw it as a kid. Really want to revisit it. Love heist movies. Love Robert Redford. Why not? Go for it. Not available. Yeah. Not even available on iTunes US, which is really, which really is better. Great. I yeah. wanted to watch The Thin Man, which like the was a franchise. William Powell, the William Powell, Murnau movies. Murnau, yeah. Murnau movies. I mean, that was a big franchise in the what thirties. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just a one off. There were there were several of them made, and I could find one of them on Amazon, but it was one of the sequels. I wanted to watch the original first. It was incredibly difficult to find. Yeah. 
Um, and I think I ended up watching a pretty crappy version on on YouTube. YouTube's I mean, got loads of stuff, but often YouTube in, has lots of stuff, but it's, uh, it's often a, not official. It's and, lawless. Yeah, and I actually would rather give somebody my ninety nine p or my one ninety nine or whatever the heck it is to watch these old movies. And the studios have locked them all in the vaults and are not making it possible. And, and it's, it's not just Disney. And it's not just the Disney Fox no, no. thing. And I think a lot of people this week were going, uh, you know, trying to use this as a as a, a stick with which to beat Disney. And they should open the Fox vaults up. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have thousands of amazing films and the idea that suddenly these films won't be available in rep cinema anymore is is heartbreaking and yeah. galling you know I still remember going a few years ago a landmark birthday for, for James Dyer and we went to see Die Hard at the Prince Charles and it was incredible I'd never seen it on the big screen before and it doesn't matter that the print's a little bit scratched and it doesn't matter if you go see I saw Alien uh, at the picture house a few mm. a couple of years ago as well and the print was basically pink it had turned pink with age <laughs> which gave it a certain frisson, I have to say, and also made the uh, the symbolic imagery of the alien itself maybe a little bit on point. But anyway. <laughs> it's a penis. It's a penis. It's a massive penis. But the fact is, there, there was great experience being able to watch those films. And if mm. they're not available anymore, that's that's really, really sad. Amazon Prime, I think, is much better at having older movies than Netflix. Netflix needs to up their game seriously in that I regard. I think they both but do. Both are terrible in terms of their search, search engines, oh, their horrific, search functions. Yeah. But I have been able to find some classic, really older horror films, for example, on Amazon Prime. Yeah, true. But for example, I recently tried to find, um, or actually it came up, to their credit, it came up on search... Um, arsenic and old lace mm. but it's not arsenic and old lace it's not the oh version oh my god really yeah it's a 1960s TV version and nobody wants that nobody wants that Cary Grant or bust people come on <laughs> um, so I think that you know that even when they have the title of the thing that you yeah. think you're looking for it is not always the thing that you're looking for and yeah. I do think that the studios in general and you're right it's not at all just Disney just Fox they need to do more by getting their stuff out there. We don't need it to be fully restored every single time. You don't need to spend millions of dollars on it every single time. But we do want to see your movies. We do want to see your movies. And the idea that some movies are going to be lost forever yeah. because they of disrepair, because of neglect, and because maybe people don't care. And I've heard stories, I don't want to name names, but I've heard stories of certain people, not necessarily even studios or companies, but maybe buying up old films wholesale mm. in their hundreds if not their thousands and just sitting on them and yeah. not doing anything with them and for me that's horrible that's almost that's borderline criminal now there is I don't know if you watch this channel but if you you know have satellite TV or whatever there's a great channel called Talking Pictures which is a British channel and dedicates itself to curating and shining a spotlight on some older movies and some of the stuff on there is incredible you know some of the the, the jewels like um Suddenly will be on there or the day the earth caught fire and just oh, cool. these little gems will yeah, suddenly yeah. pop up on Talking Pictures TV. So check that one out. But yeah, uh, more needs to be done and the bigger streaming giants need yeah. To up their game. But in the meantime, I mean, there are resources that you should look to. Have a look at the BFI's site, which has just an astonishing um, number of films on their BFI player. There are resources. It's just, you know, it takes a lot of... Um, poking about sometimes to see some of these things so uh, so yeah just you know go out there and poke <laughs> wait that sounded well wrong. wise words <laughs> oh boy this is an unusually sexy podcast <laughs> and usually they're pretty damn sexy so oh, wow, wow. Uh, alright so thank you for sending in all your questions there's loads and loads more including someone who just said why in the American Werewolf in London is a man who's bitten by a wolf on the Yorkshire Moors taken to a hospital in London it's a good question is that he should be an American there, werewolf in Leeds or something there, I mean, does he need specialist attention that wouldn't be available in 
closer hospitals. It seems funny that they wouldn't bring him to like, even if, you know, I don't know, Leeds or Sheffield couldn't handle it, that they couldn't go to Manchester or... I interviewed John Landis about this movie just the other week. Oh. I never thought to ask him this. It's the biggest question of all. It's the huge... I, I never considered that. I need to revisit this film to see whether there's a, a line about him being transferred from Sheffield or something like that. Oh, God. Thanks for ruining An American Werewolf in London for me at La Celles, if that is indeed your real name, and I strongly suspect it isn't. Anyway, <laughs> if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves, then you can get in touch mainly via Twitter at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or chances are we won't see it. Or just wait for me to ask in a panic on a Thursday or a Friday. Uh, we're also on Facebook as Empire Magazine, and you can email us as well, podcast at empireonline.com. Should we have a guest? Let's do it. Let's have a guest. Who should we have? Do you want Felicity Jones or David Michaud? I'm entirely oh flexible. God. I haven't wow. I haven't planned this podcast in any way, shape, Let's or form. Let's go David Michaud first. David Michaud? You want David Michaud? Yeah. Okay, great. He's an Australian writer-director. He is the guy who burst onto the scene a few years ago with Animal Kingdom, followed it up with the very thought-provoking and increasingly timely The Rover. Then he made War Machine for Netflix. People didn't like that one so much. It's not so bad. But he's back with Netflix again with this week's The King, which is a, how should we say? It's Henry VIII. Adaptation of Henry VIII, Henry VIII, Henry VIII, Henry VIII, Henry VIII, so it's fourth, Henry IV, part one and two, and Henry V, as written by Billy Shakespeare, but... Unwritten by Billy Shakespeare. Unwritten by Billy Shakespeare and with the Michaud, Joel Edgerton magic sprinkled all over the top and Timmy Two meets Timothy Chalamet plays Hal slash Henry. Yes. And he is having a ding-dong with... What? He's having a ding-dong with Robert Pattinson. Um, and there's all sorts of... Not, Robert Pattinson is the Dauphin and the Dauphin. Henry V goes to war against France. A ding-dong. Okay. That's, I guess. Yeah. As in the original <laughs> Shakespearean. I'm just quoting oh, here. Oh, God. And there's all sorts of great it people in it. It burns my ears. Ben Mendelsohn, Joel Edgerton as Falstaff. Yep. Sean Harris is in there. We've mentioned Robert Pattinson, obviously. Mm-hmm. Thomas M. McKenzie, Lily mm-hmm. Rose Depp. Lily Rose Depp, um, great cast. And this is a big old epic. Yes. Big old epic. So this is, uh, again, a bit of a, a left field turn for me show. And when he came into London around the time of the London Film Festival, I went to a hotel room and I sat down and we had a good old natter about this movie. I uh, can't remember anything we said, but <laughs> I hope it was good. Enjoy. I miss the days of... Um you know, those early days was a mixture of youth and just giddy excitement of just going, I can't believe I got to make a movie. I can't believe I'm traveling the world with it. And let's just get <laughs> drunk every night and then do press all day the next day. <laughs> I'm both old and jaded now. You know? <laughs> well, that's good. So am I. So this should be a fun 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. um, do you mind if I pick up on that? Because I, I, I'm interested to see whether you went back and reread any of those interviews the, the day after you, you went out and you did a full day of press. <laughs> and then read the back of, what did I say? Yeah. <laughs> did I say good stuff? Because I read somewhere that you actually learned about the movies that you make as you're going through the, the press process. Yeah, I mean, it's the last... Um, it feels like closure to me. It always feels like I'm getting to look at a thing that has consumed me so completely for so long, almost from the outside. Mm. And it, to some extent, feels like I get to talk about the movie um, in a way that is somehow out of body. It's not of me, you know? Yeah. And I find in the process that I always learn 
stuff about it that I hadn't thought of before. But no, it's funny you should mention the in the old days when I'd get like horribly drunk and then do press. And I'd, well, the thing I never regretted anything I ever said. I was always just amazed at how how frequently people um, misquoted. You know, really? Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, I, to the extent that I would say, like a good seventy to eighty percent of interviews I did, I would read them back. You know, this is after Animal Kingdom. I just read everything because it okay. was mysteriously all good, <laughs> and I was just excited that I'd gotten to make a movie and that yeah. and that something I'd done was being written about by other people. It was very exciting. I read a lot and then was just like, but I was like, I absolutely hundred percent positive I didn't say that. <laughs> I certainly didn't, didn't say, say it that, that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a beautiful thing about uh, podcasts, David. We we can't we can't misquote you. No. This is it. Damn straight. <laughs> this is absolutely it. But The King is a movie you've been living with for a long time now. You, you and Joel first started writing it back in 2013. Mm-hmm. Have you lived with any movie that long? How long was Animal Kingdom, for example? Oh, yeah. Just dating? Like 10 years. 10 years for Animal Kingdom. Okay. That's one of the... I'm in a kind of strange position at the moment where I have no idea what's next. And I'm liking it because it feels new. Every movie that I've made thus far... Mm-hmm. All four of them mm-hmm. have been movies that, in some way or other, I have dragged <laughs> from the past into the present. Okay, I'm very excited by the prospect of whatever's next being somehow fresh and of me now. Okay, so there's nothing, nothing percolating at the moment. You've got no. You wait and no, see what happens. My- some time off. See what happens with the old, the old brain cells. Yeah, because okay. like my skull is an empty vessel at the moment. <laughs> that's for sure. Welcome to my world. Mm. (laughs) But it has been a roughly six-year gestation process for this movie. Uh, What were the first conversations you and Joel had about this movie? Six years, but also, you know, as has been the case before as well, it's like I made a whole other movie in the meantime, you know what I mean? It's like things just come up and things take over momentarily and then order is restored in the universe. I mean, the early conversations with Joel, Joel came to me and proposed the idea of tackling some version of the story of Henry V. Mm-hmm. He had played Shakespeare's Hal and Henry V, um, the Henry IV plays and Henry V on mm-hmm. stage when he was fresh out of drama school okay. and to much acclaim. I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... That's a good fit. And it was, a, uh, you know, I think for him, a profoundly important creative and professional experience. You know, he's mm. again, fresh out of drama school. You never know whether or not there's a career waiting for you. and. Mm. And it was a much talked about performance. Mm-hmm. But since then, Joel and I have become very good friends, and we, you know, live practically next door to each other in Sydney, and um, and we love working together. Yeah. So yeah, in those early conversations, I mean, he basically just came to me and said, "How do you feel about tackling some version of Henry V? And you know, I uh, my initial thought was that it was a terrible idea, just because <laughs> it would never have occurred to me to make a medieval film, you know, uh, whatever that means. Yeah. But, you know, as is often the case with me, I quite like being set the abstract challenge, you know, just, the, <laughs> just trying to find a way of presenting the thing that doesn't feel like me. Okay, yeah. And also, you know, relishing, just being thankful for the opportunity to move away from whatever my actual instincts are, you know, my because <laughs> it, it's happened a number of times that abstract challenges have been set for me and I really like them because I'm, what I'm doing when I'm thinking about my own stuff is... I don't know, getting caught in rabbit holes that don't lead anywhere. And okay. there's something something exciting about being set parameters, you know? Yeah. Is that something that happened after Animal Kingdom, for example? This idea, I, I guess, of 
following up this movie that, as you say, was was universally liked and you know is has now spawned a TV show and mm. and uh, the pressures that come with that of that that sophomore effort and and the follow up. I love the rover, but it's an interesting left field step. I, I would say. Yeah, and that was itself a kind of abstract challenge. That was a movie that Joel and I again had already started mapping a story for. Mm-hmm. We thought at first that we were writing a movie for Joel's brother Nash to direct. We were going to write a script about a kind of car chase in the desert. Mm. I ended up writing something that was very much more of me than of Nash. Mm -hmm. But again, I enjoyed being set the abstract challenge of it. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, possibly to my own detriment, but I have the idea of doing something exactly like what I've just done fills me with a... (laughs) It's not even a... Uh, dread it's just an ennui you know it's yeah. just like a well, what's uh, the point yeah because they're so yeah. hard they take so much time it doesn't feel like a job it feels like a full whole self experience and i always want the next thing to feel like a personal reinvention of the wheel yeah but it also means i think i'm i probably make it difficult for people to track a thread yeah, through I the can, movies i can see that know? yeah absolutely but that's, I, I like it. I like careers like that 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 weave in and out. Uh, the King is vastly different from War Machine, which was vastly different from the Rover, mm. uh, which is vastly different from from Animal Kingdom, in fact. And one of the connecting threads, one of the things that you know, that you do seem to return to, um, not necessarily thematically, but you have you have people that you'd like to work with again and again. Certainly, cast members that you return to again. Uh, yeah, uh, Joel being one, Guy Pearce being another, Ben. Ben Mendelsohn, mm-hmm. of course, as well, and Robert Pattinson in, yeah. in this movie as well. So, is it you know? Are you a little bit like I love when directors find this sort of traveling rep that they work with again and again and again? Is that something that that you like to do? Or when do you know you found someone you want to work with multiple times? To be honest with you, I don't know why. I don't know that there's any particular motivation other than that, you know, I would like to believe that I cast these people for the first time because they're really, really good, and then <laughs> you just want really, really good people to be in you things yeah. you know yeah obviously having worked with them before means that they are they, Compl- they, they they appear at the top of the google search of my brain when i'm thinking <laughs> of people you know yeah um and there is something you know the movies are huge big you know very emotional school camp experiences and between them sometimes you can drift away from these people so there's it's quite nice to Except Joel, who's next door. Joel's next door. <laughs> Joel's an exception to that one. But it's always nice to bring people that you've loved working with in the past back into your life and yeah. basically paying them to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> Just come, be my, come be my friend for six months, especially with this one. And, and Joel uh, plays Falstaff in this, and he's fantastic. And that accent, man, that accent is, is on point. Yeah, yeah, I really like this. So he's he's doing a kind of a, a Yorkshire tinge, yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, he's he's a talented dude. Can you talk about that decision? Was that did that come from him? Did that come from you? Well, you know, one of the things that we had, we made a decision really early on with the movie that we wanted to move away from Shakespeare. It was clear to us we wanted to do that, you know, for reasons of to do with theme and mm-hmm. politics, but also to do with form. You know, it's we. We didn't want to do a straight adaptation. I mean, yeah, you condense a lot, you change it. There's a lot, lot, lot has changed as well. Yeah, and, the- and wanting to turn it, we thought the interesting version of this story was the one that was, you know, a, a story of Henry V almost as a, a, you know, a kind of well-intentioned tyrant, you know? Yeah. So we made a decision early on to move away from the Shakespeare, but it's like, okay, what are we going to do instead, you know? 
people back then would have been speaking French or some form of Middle English, mm-hmm. and you know we weren't going to make the movie in either of those. Uh, <laughs> Even Netflix might have said no to that. One. Yeah. <laughs> And so we started investigating a kind of English that we would use. You know, it was quite. It's it's kind of it's it it has a formality mm-hmm. uh, to it. I tried as hard as I could to make sure that you know, even though people aren't speaking the way they would have back then, at mm-hmm. least the at least the etymology of the words could be traced back to somewhere mm-hmm. in that period. But also, kind of getting a hint that Middle English probably had certain kind of, uh, you know, it being a kind of weird mix of Germanic and Nordic and all this sort of that it probably had a northern flavour. In a way, the only people in the movie who speak a modern RP mm-hmm. are um, that central royal family: uh, yeah. Mendelssohn, Timmy, and yeah. Thomason, yeah. and young Thomas, played by Dean Charles Chapman. But everyone else just has a kind of regional flavour. Yeah. yeah. And that's obviously a decision you make right at the beginning of the writing process, I presume. Or uh, For you, does a directorial process start when you, when you start on page one yeah. with Joel? Presumably in the same room, I'm guessing. I don't know how your writing process works. No, we did. Uh, it's, it's tricky to sit at a computer together, you know, with any co-writer, I think. Okay. We spent a lot of time together just mapping out the beats of the story you know we went to Lombok in Indonesia for a couple of weeks early on that was beautiful you know just us <laughs> in our board shorts mapping out the Battle of Agincourt in the sand you know? <laughs> that part of the process happens quite intensely and we're in the room together but then when the writing starts it's a little bit of divvying up scenes and and swapping them and mm. at a certain point I then just have to take over because I know I'm making it I, I I need to do my final polish on it and I've had that experience before co-writing with other people who I knew were going to direct you know both with shorts and I the movie Hesher I did with mm. Spencer Susser you know mm. certain point you know I knew as a co-writer that I I should just step back okay. that these people are going to have to make the thing and they the want to understand it yeah. uh I don't want to argue with them about things. You know, you hit a certain point where I go, I just want you to feel like you understand every line of this script in your, it feels of you in your DNA and Mm -hmm. I'm just going to step back. I love co-writing, especially when, you know, someone as beautiful as Joel and it's just, it ends up always becoming just the two of us sitting in a room talking about, you know, life and our feelings (laughs) all through the prism of this, strange abstract challenge absolutely uh this feels like a movie i mean you're you're you're, as you say you're not directly adapting shakespeare but uh this is a story shakespeare told over three different plays and Mm. there's there's a lot to to pack in and it's a two hours plus movie as as it is but was there a longer version at one point did you have to you know is there a a lot that you cut out even maybe at at the scripting stage uh not a huge amount no i mean you know yeah it's uh, again one of the reasons why if it weren't for the fact that Joel plays a character named Falstaff, who is a purely Shakespearean conceit, I would love to not be talking about Shakespeare at all. Because uh-huh. we have, to the extent that it's an adaptation, we've taken Henry four parts one and two and jammed it in the first 20 minutes of the movie. Yes. You know. But it was, it was quite refined. I, I'm quite surprised that, um, you know, I think over having written the script over a number of years, refining it and refining it, there was probably a three-hour cut of the movie, but okay. that uh, is three. The first assemblies are always they're three always hours long. Yeah. yeah, they're always bloated, and <laughs> so I, I don't think there was much of great substance that was okay. cut out of the thing. It's just it becomes about a rhythm exercise. Yeah. You know? 
Absolutely. So going back to the beginning of the project, 2013, you were talking about the, the themes of the movie and the idea of Henry and this being a well-meaning, well-intentioned tyrant. You started this in 2013. We're now in 2019. There are lots of tyrants around who are less than well-intentioned, I would say. Mm-hmm. Has the way the world has changed over the last few years, did that change your approach to the movie and to that character? No, not really. I mean, it's... Because in a way, if you are to draw anything from the film, it's that as much as it is uh, an emotional journey for Hal himself, mm-hmm. it's the movie in, to a certain extent is about how leaders are almost interchangeable because it's the pre-existing institutions that they enter mm-hmm. that end up kind of controlling the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, for better and for worse, you know, I think they have a way of hamstringing the well-intentioned, you know, yeah, it's, absolutely. as you could say of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, in theory, should have a way of keeping lunatics in check, you know. In theory. Uh, in theory. <laughs> in theory, yeah. That's what I hear. So, no, I mean, we were when we were writing, um, initially we were kind of, we were thinking about how strangely within this story you could draw parallels to both a, a kind of a George W. and an, a, you know, and an Obama administration. It yeah. was almost not about left versus right, good versus evil yeah. or anything. It was about a leader entering a machine they can't control. It's just interesting to think about how films become timely over time, even more so than when they were first released. I mean, The Rover, for example, I revisited that a few months ago, and my God, <laughs> it feels like it was made now. It was, feels like it was made right now, and it is predicting 10 minutes in the future. I know, it's funny. It's the uh, I had the same experience on War Machine as well, of kind of feeling like people... You know, I remember being asked a lot with that film whether or not, you know, people felt like it was, it was, I'd been working on it for a while, but now it was suddenly so relevant. And I'm like, it's been relevant for 15 years. You know, it's, it's, what are we doing in Afghanistan? Yeah. I mean, I think if the things are, if your themes are true, then they, they remain eternally so. Mm, Absolutely. And one last question before I let you go, David. I believe when this movie premiered at the Venice Film Festival, you received an eight minute standing ovation. I wasn't timing it. I'm sure somebody okay. was. That's the thing that I just. <laughs> someone always says it was eight minutes. It was ten minutes. It was twelve minutes. And I just I'm fascinated. A, who's timing it, and B, what's it like being on the inside of that, standing there while strange and apart. extraordinary, and and you know, and there's I don't know the way my brain works. It's like I'm all I'm wondering is, does everyone get this? Do all the movies at Venice get this standing <laughs> ovation? How many of those people out there standing up and clapping are only doing it because the people around them stood up, you know? And you've, you've done that, surely, you know? You have to give a standing ovation and you, and you don't want to be the one jerk that's still sitting because you go, it doesn't deserve it. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, just if you're going four minutes, maybe maybe it's time to sit down now. Yeah. Maybe I'm, I'm getting a bit tired. My hands yeah. are a bit sore. Um, yeah, really? We're going to keep doing that. <laughs> oh, man, it's fantastic. David, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you for having me. All right, so that was David Michaud, interesting guy. We'll talk about the King in review section in just a few minutes. But first up, let's talk about movie news. What's been floating your boat this week, Helen? There was a lot of Game of Thrones adjacent news this week. Yes, there was. Uh, which I think is, is worth talking about. So, um, but this isn't the pilot TV podcast. Oh, good Lord. No, but it's we were here first, damn it. So anyway, um, the biggest piece of news and the most relevant perhaps to us is the fact that David Benioff and D.B. Wise are off their proposed Star Wars trilogy. Um, They're apparently too busy with the work that they've also signed up to do with Netflix and therefore they have stepped away. And do you believe that? 
I don't know, but I am very, very taken with Kathleen Kennedy's statement about it, which says, pays tribute to them as incredible storytellers, says she hopes to include them in the journey forward. And I quote, when they are able to step away from their busy schedule to focus on Star Wars, which sounds a little bit to me... That's a bit passive-aggressive, isn't it's it? A bit, it's a bit salty, isn't <laughs> That's it? That's a bit passive. It's a little bit salty. Um, Hello. When you have a moment, if you could make a Star Wars film for us, that'd be nice. Yeah, you know, that loads of people will see and, and stuff. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, so the, the theory was that we thought their trilogy was due to begin in 2022. Um, there were even rumours, I think, that theirs might have been a Knights of the Old Republic story. Is that right? Am I making that up? I honestly don't it know. It might be wishful thinking. Yeah. To be honest. I'm, I'm really intrigued by what they were going to do because mm. surely they weren't going to direct it. Surely they were just going to write and produce it. And it was such an early stage, even though it was meant to be out in 2022. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what was going I don't, on. Who knows? Who knows? But, who um, you know, they're, they're, they've got a deal over at Netflix. Uh, but wasn't this unfortunate timing because this came on the back of this Twitter storm because it wasn't that they made an appearance as some sort of festival or a panel yeah, uh, they did a panel yeah, discussing their um, their work on Game of Thrones and made a lot of very honest revelations about where they thought they'd gone wrong on a lot of different things during Game of Thrones production from the earliest stages of the, mm-hmm. the first pilot onwards. Yeah, the, the infamous from their, pilot from, In fact, from their, from their pitch onwards, sort of confessing that they knew nothing, that they focused on the wrong things at times. And I think in many ways it was quite a commendable panel in that they were owning up to mistakes that they'd made and, and showing a certain amount of reflection and consideration. I think what the internet jumped on was the idea that they had been given, first of all, this, you know, very big show. Um, and then it appeared numerous chances to fail upwards. And even when things didn't work and even where they had the wrong priorities or whatever else, they'd been kind of rescued from that. So people really jumped on them on the back of that thread. Um, with, I would say, a little bit of justification, but not quite as much justification as would have, you know, justified quite the hard the, the the strength of the jumping does that make sense anyway <laughs> i'm not um, sure it does but that's that's okay yeah I, I just felt like they you know there's there's a certain amount of truth to the criticisms basically but i didn't feel like it was quite entirely warranted no uh, I, I yeah i think it was basically two showrunners who and i don't know necessarily whether the weight of criticism would have come upon them had this the final season not been considered by many yeah. to be a disappointment again I have to come at this from the point of view of someone who's seen literally three episodes of the game of the game of the thrones of the game of the thrones and uh, I don't I don't have an opinion on the show itself sure. um, I'm sure it's fine but I know that a lot of people were disappointed by the last few episodes and uh, and they obviously chose Benioff and Weiss as the sort of culprits for well, that I mean to be honest that is I um, think fair enough yeah, like if, yeah. if we believe in the alter theory and all that or whatever the equivalent is for TV they are the showrunners they yeah. carry the can and I think they would accept that as well Yeah. so that's okay but um, I think the problem with the Game of Thrones finale and I may have said this on the podcast before so apologies if I'm repeating myself by the nature of coming to a conclusion you are divorcing yourself from the whole idea of Game of Thrones it's like Game of Thrones' entire ethos has been I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that you know Mm. somebody swings a sword gets into the saddle and goes follow me and everybody goes fucking why mate 
And that's because he has to convince everybody and, and then he has to make compromises, which then piss off the other person. And that's been the whole show up until now. The whole show has been you don't just ride off into battle. You meet a complication on the way and, and a new character who you've never considered before. And then you have to deal with that as well. And you can't do that in your last season because you're trying to reach a conclusion. So by the nature of trying to come to a conclusion, they were already messing with the whole ethos of Game of Thrones, I feel like. And, and they don't have any problem with that, uh, any solution for that. And I feel like that may be what's stopping George R. R. Martin from finishing the damn series as well. So I have some sympathy with them, but yeah. at the same time, um, I, I also have some sympathy with people, you know, saying that they got a million chances that, you know, other people have not had and should maybe, you know, be mm. grateful for that. So I don't Absolutely. Know. And I think that's also thrown into sharp relief by the other news this week that came from the Game of Thrones land, which is that uh, HBO were working on a number of prequel pilots. Yeah, there were like five in development at one yeah. point, weren't there? And one made it to uh, Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. where it was put on film mm-hmm. and shot. And that was uh, overseen, showrun, if you will, by Jane Goldman. And it yep. was a prequel set many thousands of years before the events of the Game of the Thrones. And it starred Naomi Watts and a, a, another an amazing cast as well. And news came this week that like the first pilot yep. for Game of Thrones, HBO weren't going ahead with it. And by that, I presume we're never going to see it. It seems like that one is out the window, yeah. So <laughs> what they like have Brad. done instead is they have announced a second pilot, which has gone directly to series. This one has been ordered direct to series, and it's called House of the Dragon. And again, George R.R. R. Martin fans, you're one, Helen, you'll mm-hmm. you'll know more about what that is. But that's, a, I believe, a novel or a series of novels about the Tar- Targaryen family. Targaryen family, for the sure. The dynasty yeah. Yeah. and how they fell apart and uh, the, the road to madness that led, of course, to the Game of the Thrones. Mm. And that's about 300 years before uh, Game of Thrones. So... My question is, why doesn't Jane Goldman get a do-over? <laughs> well, that's a good question. And that's, I think, one of the criticisms that, you know, essentially was being directed at Benioff and Wise. House of the Dragon is not the best of my knowledge based on a series of novels, um, but it is based on a George R. R. Martin story. Ah, okay, that's good. Yeah, and, um, and it's, I think, stuff that's been alluded to in the main Game of Thrones Series, so it's basically the rise of the House Targaryen and their dragons, I think, or, or maybe their f- sort of decline a little bit as well. So it's uh, it, it's potentially very interesting and uh, essentially involves a lot of dragons, which, as you know, I'm a big fan of. So I'm, I'm <laughs> on board for that. But yeah, I do think it's a shame because I think uh, Jane Goldman's a fantastic writer, and I'm I'm kind of bummed that we don't get to see what she was working on. Uh, yeah, very much so. She's amazing, and I, it's baffling to me. Absolutely baffling because apparently the first Game of Thrones pilot was um, almost unwatchable. So yeah. I've heard the same. Yeah, they got a do over. Why not? Why not one of the best writers in the business? Yeah. But anyway, this new one, House of the Dragon, is going to be uh, overseen, show run by Ryan Condal alongside George R. R. Martin. Yep. And well. I'm not going to point out that this is yet another distraction from finishing his books. I realize that George R. R. Martin is, in the words of Neil Gaiman, not my bitch. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, if he could find a moment in his schedule to finish writing the mm-hmm. series, I feel like we would all very much welcome that as readers. Yes. And of course, uh, Miguel Sapochnik as well, who mm. directed many of the key episodes of Game of Thrones, is is going to be co-showrunner as well. So, But yeah, I, I was a bit snippy about this on Twitter and I, someone slapped me in the wrist. Uh, a little <sighs> bit of, oh, how dare you be condescending towards uh, prequels, uh, I was told. 
because I think by and large prequels are, are and you're we're you know yeah, you're in the, yeah. you and I are in the same boat. I think yeah. prequels are large, but by and large, uh, redundant creatively yeah. and narratively. And uh, if you're going to go down, listen, I know that HBO birthed a golden goose with Game of Thrones. And I know that whenever you do that, that it, it behooves you to keep that golden goose alive. And so therefore, we're going to have Game of Thrones content coming out of our ears over the next few years. Uh, but I don't know why you would necessarily go down the prequel route. Yeah. A sequel, fine. I'm, I'm on board with that. And listen, I say this as someone who acknowledges both that one of the greatest movies of all time is The Godfather Part Two, mm-hmm. uh, the Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom is a prequel. And of course, one of my favorite TV shows right now is Better Call Saul, which is also a prequel. Sure. So this is not to say the prequels can't work. They can. They can, but just maybe not as many of them as we have right yes. now. So, there you know, go. how it but is. Anyway, should we talk about something that's not Game of Thrones? Let's talk about Limon Miranda. Oh, God. What have I done? <laughs> you left the door open. I fell into your trap. <laughs> um, yes, uh, Limon Miranda yesterday published a gif of Garfield with no explanation. I'm just a little cat you know, probably thinking about lasagna. And uh, we thought it was one of his many japes on Twitter. But no, it was a joke about a piece of casting because Andrew Garfield is taking the lead in Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut, which is Tick, Tick, Boom, which is, of course, an autobiographical off-Broadway show created by Jonathan Larson, the playwright best known, of course, for Rent. So Garfield would be essentially playing the sort of quasi Jonathan Larson role in it. The story of the of the show is about a would be composer who's struggling to kind of get his breakthrough seen and heard, and and wondering if he made the right choice with his life in you know in deciding to try and compose musicals. Mm. Um, so that's basically the the setup. It's obviously something very dear to Jonathan Larson's heart. Um, so uh, so yeah, so it's it's going to be exciting. I think. I mean, Andrew Garfield. Uh, People know him as Spider-Man. People know him from, I don't know, Never Let Me Go, all of these <laughs> RuPaul's Drag Race. RuPaul's Drag Race, <laughs> where he was a fantastic judge, I have to say. I was a bit like, <laughs> what the hell's wait, happening what's, here? What's happening? Why is this happening? But he obviously he's knew the fan. show. He he's knew a big, the show. He's a big fan. You could tell. He knew all the catchphrases. Like he He's was, talked to us about it, about it in the past, about how much he loved it. And yeah, I, you know, I do wonder if someone maybe read that and thought, can you get him on the show? <laughs> and uh, it worked. Yeah. yeah. So, But he also, of course, has spent a couple of years recently doing Angels in America on stage. Uh, I saw him here in London. He then took it to Broadway. He was freaking fantastic in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of excited to see what he does with this as well. Yes, we, we like Andrew Garfield. And I am familiar with the work of uh, Linny Manny. Uh, yes. And uh, oh God! I suspect that this would be a, a good old match made in heaven. Let him so, never find out that you call him that. Linny Manny. Why not? It's just awful. What isn't a it? lovely nickname. No. Linny Manny. Anyway, he's going to be in His Dark Materials, the new series of which starts on the BBC this weekend, which is exciting. Does it? Yeah, it does. I'm very much looking forward to that one because, um, let's face it, the film wasn't that great. No. But there is every potential in those books to make a great TV show, I think, where you've got yes. a bit more space to kind of play with the format. Indeed. I'm looking forward to. Uh, to that and of course any spin-off podcasts uh, that might be addressing the show. Sure, I uh, don't know what you mean. Uh, what, oh yeah, what? I oh, do. Right, okay, yeah. Okay, do you? Do you know? There <laughs> will actually be. Yeah, I, I am actually involved in a uh, spin-off podcast called His Darker Materials. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's going to be two minutes to come up with that name. It's going to be available on Spotify, and I'm doing that with David Corkery from the Cine Mile and mm-hmm. Kobe Omanaka from uh, The Wire Stripped. Well, they're both from The Wire Stripped. They're both, really. uh, yeah. But yeah, we're going to go week by week and discuss his dark materials, which will be fun. Very good. And I'd also like to announce my own spin-off podcast. Oh, yeah? uh, his darker materials, darker materials, uh, were which is 
a podcast where I will be going week by week through his dark materials with a interviewing special. Interviewing No, me. I'll, yeah, it's a, it's about your show. Right. So you'll be interviewing us about. No. No. It's mainly just me going. What the fuck is this? How dare you? For how? how Where is my invitation? That's basically. Would you like to come on? You're very no, welcome. I can't, Helen. I'm, no, I'm busy that week. So. Okay. All right. So. Nicolas Cage is going to fight a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> animatronic um, unstoppable killing robots in a theme park. Okay, but like we're doing film news here, oh, Chris. Sorry. We're not just talking about what he's doing in his spare time. Sorry. Oh, wait, it is uh, a film. Oh, it is a film. Oh. Yeah. It's called Wally's Wonderland, uh, directed by Kevin Lewis. And people were going nuts for this on, on the Twitters when this was announced. I, I think Cage these days, how should we say this? Maybe the quality threshold isn't quite there in terms of evaluating his scripts he, we know he has certain bills to pay Yeah, um, but um, this sounds exciting and it's potentially a, a great bit of, um, of caged nonsense it does yeah I, I, I think um, it, it sounds it recalls obviously Westworld yes. um, it also makes me think of National Lampoon because that was Wally's World, wasn't that it? That was Wally's World, yes. So I wonder if it, this is a, a stealth spin-off <laughs> to National Lampoon, which would be fun. And the third thing it really makes me think of is that Community episode where um, Abed starts studying Nicolas Cage. Do you remember that? I do remember It was that. Nicolas Cage, good or bad, and it drove him to madness trying to figure it out. What do you think? I think it would drive me to madness also. I was just watching Moonlight yesterday um, because, you know, it just felt like that kind of a day. And also because I saw Cher in concert last week. Did I mention that? I saw Cher in concert. Oh, my God, it was amazing. <laughs> didn't actually. Did I not? No. Oh, I saw Cher in did concert. Did she do the Shoop Shoop song? She did do the Shoop Shoop song. Well, uh, she played clips from her movies. She did one of the songs from Burlesque. She did all the hits except for Jesse James, which is my favorite. But Isn't that just like Jesse James isn't it just to like not Jesse do James? that song? I know. But, like, she, you know, she came out still wearing that, the cat suit from... Um, turn back time and they had a big visual behind her of a battleship you know it was wow. just perfect so if you could turn back time yeah if, if I could, could find, find a way, a way yeah. would you make her do Jesse James yes okay did she do I Got You Babe yes and she did it with a um, a video clip no, of Sunny no she didn't did yeah. she yeah it was actually really moving really was yeah, it yeah it was bizarrely it was really really moving she talked about it a little bit before she did it but it was it was lovely okay anyway Nicholas Cage is in Moon, Nicholas Cage Moonlight. Nicholas Cage is in uh, uh, Moonstruck. Yes. Moonstruck, yes, not, not Moonlight. Not Moonlight. a different film. Very different film. And was both good and bad in that. I would say that, that that's uh, applicable to a lot of his early performances. <laughs> yes. So I don't know is the answer. I love him. I think he's amazing. And I love how much he just is, goes out there when he is engaged with the material. Uh, some other little bits and pieces to run through. Craig Mazin, the uh, showrunner and creator of Chernobyl, is uh, going to rewrite the reboot of Pirates of the Caribbean. Interesting. So maybe going to take a dark documentary turn <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, Michael Keaton and William Hurt have joined the cast of Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. Yes, which is exciting. I am mm-hmm. looking forward to this. I'm not an Aaron Sorkin hater. I want to make that clear, given that James isn't here to blather on about and it. A nation breathes a sigh of relief. Uh, indeed, it does. I should also mention while we're talking Aaron Sorkin that uh, the production he put on for Broadway of To Kill a Mockingbird is coming to London next year so we all want to buy our tickets for that because To Kill a Mockingbird is great and he's great so mm-hmm. that's going to be very much a hot ticket in London theatre next year if you're around this part of the world and Oscar Isaac um, has signed up for uh, a new film The Card Counter for Paul Schrader which is kind of interesting uh, there's a weird lack of this is genuinely the first week in ages I can remember there's not a single bit of comic book movie news or if there is we've missed it <laughs> Good Lord, we wouldn't, so, would we? Has, has Scorsese's influence, pernicious influence, already reached Hollywood? 
uh, they, he stopped them making comic book movies? There was there was uh, a claim from Todd Phillips that uh, he and Joaquin Phoenix talked constantly about a Joker sequel while they were on set. Now, was that a claim he made on the Emperor podcast? I think it was. <laughs> I'm just mentioning it, you know. No, it's good, good. Um, because uh, the Joker spoiler special is finally up. It is finally up. It is there for you to listen to if you so desire. It is very interesting. Helen was unavailable, was not in the room. Mm-hmm. And actually, Helen, on reflection, that might have been a good thing because I'm not <laughs> sure that any of us would have made it out there alive. And um, another thing <laughs> I disagree with you all on. <laughs> I haven't even done the introduction yet. But you're wrong. But I'm just literally saying your name. This whole no. podcast is wrong. <laughs> Shut it down now. Uh, anyway, it's up there and it's really interesting. And There's a Todd Phillips uh, interview on it as well if you want to listen to that. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff coming your way, including an Anthony Daniels special. Ooh. In fact, oh, look at this, Helen. <gasps> uh, we have right in front of us because Anthony Daniels was in that chair mere minutes before you wow. walked into the studio. We just finished recording a fairly lengthy chat because he's got a book coming out called I Am C3PO, the Inside Story, Anthony Daniels, forward by Jajrams. Jabrams. I believe that's J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams. Mm. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, he's he's an up-and-comer. I think he's got a bright future. Oh, okay. Mm. Jabrams. Jabrams is the, uh, the, the forward writer. And Anthony Daniels has signed a copy oh, wow. that we will be giving away. In gold, naturally. In Presumably gold. he just scribbled on it with his finger. <laughs> yeah, he brings, he brings gold bars with him, which he melts down, and then he writes them on the page. Um... And so we'll be giving that away at some point in the midst of that special, which will be up next week. And I have to figure that out because we don't tend to do competitions in the podcast and we don't sure, I'm not sure how that mechanic works. But cool. anyway, that's up there for you to listen to. Whilst we're plugging stuff as well, it is New Empire Time. New Empire! Woo! New Empire Time. The latest issue of Empire Magazine is on sale now and we're very, very excited about it. Why? It's a good one. I mean, not that they're not all good, but this is a particularly good one, I thought. Like, I, I picked it up and basically read it cover to cover when I was only Did planning you know? to. I was only planning to pick it up and look at one thing that I'd written, and then I ended up, like, reading the whole thing. That's so exciting, that was, isn't it? Yeah, it was good. But it's a preview issue, so we look mm-hmm. ahead to the, the big films that are coming your way in the next number of months. Mm-hmm. I wrote about Wonder Woman. Uh, what else is in there? We've got Dune in there. We've got Black well, Widow. We've got... Well, 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 Helen, we have the first word. On No Time to Die. <gasps> from the producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli. Oh my goodness. Talking about the challenges that Bond will be facing. Mainly erectile dysfunction. What? Which I no. thought was surprising. No. But uh, it's an interesting direction for the series to take. We reveal the name of Rami Malek's bad guy in no. that movie. I know. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> I, I, such I, a thing? I feel like I can, but... I don't know if it's too late for the people who hand out Pulitzers to consider this mm. but uh, I think I should win a Pulitzer for that technically you have to be American to win a Pulitzer I think I should win a Pulitzer <laughs> for that um, then we have Flawless. also thank you <laughs> oh Last Night in Soho is Last in Night in Soho we have the first word on Last Night in Soho so many people have been asking me virtually nobody but in my head so many people have been asking me Chris what is Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho What what's the basic story and in this month's issue, you will find out Amazing. the basic concept sure. of the film. There are many details so yet many. to be filled in, but let's just say it'd be trippy. Whoa. I know. Absolutely. Uh, so that's in there as well. Uh, there's tons of other great stuff inside the issue. Greta great, Gerwig. Great, this is Greta great. Gerwig. This is so good. She basically interviewed 
her Little Women cast. Uh, I'm embargoed from reviewing Little Women, but I am allowed to speak about it on social media. Can you do, really... a, facial, do a facial expression? Because then I'm not embargoed. <laughs> that, that was a voice. I made a sound. That was I'm a, sorry. Was okay, sound. let me try this again. Okay. Helen is waving her hands. She's in distress. She looks upset. She is terrified. No, she's <laughs> smiling. She's smiling. The smile is reaching the eyes. The smile, thumbs up. Two thumbs are up. Now they're being waved around the air. And Helen seems, that probably sounds like a three. <laughs> sounds to me like this could be a three-star movie. So oh that's three gosh. stars then for Greta no. Gerwig's Little Women. Uh, and next we move on. To, oh, wait, uh, uh, jumping the gun slightly. And it sounds amazing. It, Little Women sounds amazing. So, so very excited about that. Anyway, she has interviewed her four stars. Saoirse Ronan, Florence Pugh, yep. Emma Watson, and the other one are all interviewed in this month's And when magazine. she says she there, it, when he says she there, he means Greta Gerwig did the interview, not me. Yeah, um, yes. But yeah, Eliza Scanlon is the other one, of course. Of course. Who plays Beth. I am fully aware of, course you are. of who Greta Gerwig um, has cast If as you were worried women. that, hang on, do they have enough handsome people in the issue? I mean, we've kind of mentioned quite a lot of handsome and beautiful people so far. Yeah, but You are right. My picture is in the magazine. Chris's picture is in there. More importantly, Emilia Clark and Henry Golding what? talked last Christmas. They're not handsome. And Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson talk marriage story. So there's quite a lot of quite hot people in there. Yes, we cannot take responsibility for any babies that are born as a result of reading this month's magazine. <laughs> That's true. And we we do we look at the Before trilogy. We do look at Julie the Before Delphi trilogy. With Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke. And Richard Linklater. Oh, so many handsome people. And uh, David Fincher is our Empire 30 oh, director this amazing. month. And he opens his fault. He opens his archives to Fight Club, which you may not be able to see soon in a repertory cinema. Oh, no. And, uh, but he opens up the archives and shows us never-before-seen photographs. And in the spoiler section, we look at not only Joker, but also <laughs> Hustlers. Hustlers. Look at that. It's exciting. It's such a good issue. What an issue. Can I also talk about the fact that Pilot TV magazine is with Empire this month? And mm-hmm. the reason I want to talk about that, they've also got their own preview, and I'm sure that's very nice and everything. But more importantly, <laughs> it contains my article on why you should all be watching Supernatural. Oh, you, you've written a piece for Pilot, have you, Helen? I have. That's right. That's nice. Have you, have you not written a piece no. for Pilot? Oh. No, I have not written a piece for Pilot. And in fact, Helen, the few times I've appeared on the Pilot TV podcast... Oh, you've appeared on this Pilot TV podcast, I've walked into the room, oh, turned okay. up my microphone, and started speaking. Oh, Wow. I haven't been officially invited. I'm sure. I just haven't checked my post. I'm sure they've invited us both somewhere. I'm sure they have. Anyway, the new issue of Empire is on sale right now, digitally and printly, and that's available in all good and evil news agents and wherever it is you get your digital stuff. Digital news agents, I, I presume. I guess. But there you go. That's very, very exciting. And we are going to end the news section on a, on a sad note because Robert Evans, a legendary Robert Evans, producer, studio head, Raconteur, subject of The Kid Stays in the Picture, mm. has died at the age of 89. Yeah, just something like three months after finally sort of retiring fully mm. um, from his work, which is, um, I guess, is the way it goes sometimes. But um, but yeah, he, he was uh, an astonishing figure in Hollywood history. I, I do really recommend either reading or watching The Kid Stays in the Picture. The book was really good, and then yep. I saw the documentary, and it's a beautifully made documentary about his his um, history but he kind of started as an actor and he got some pretty minor roles for the most part but he uh, he kind of parlayed that into 
a real flair for producing. Um, so he he came back to uh, Hollywood. He he produced films like The Detective, uh, Paint Your Wagon, Rosemary's Baby, The Great Gatsby. Just kind of kept rising up through the ranks at Paramount, and also had you know a personal life involving basically everyone. Many, many beautiful women. Yes, um, uh, he had seven ex-wives, one of whom was Ali McGraw. I mean, very handsome man. Very handsome man and uh, loved the ladies. Yeah. But he was, uh, he was a studio head. He was a studio head at, uh, at Paramount and he, uh, he oversaw The Godfather and tales of his uh, influence in that movie and how he dealt with uh, Francis Ford Coppola and how he handled Francis Ford Coppola are legion mm. and uh, don't always paint him in the best light. And he, that was something actually he kind of leaned into as well, I think, um, that sort of reputation. And then after that, he produced the likes of Chinatown as yeah. well. And he was known very much around Hollywood as... Uh, as a guy who liked to party and uh, he hung in that circle of Jack Nicholson's mm. circle, very good friends with Jack Nicholson and the like. And uh, he was the life and soul of the party and he was influential and responsible for so many great, great movies and he was an incredible storyteller as well. Never had the uh, the pleasure. No, me myself, either, sadly. But uh, I do know people who interviewed him and who, and who knew him and they spoke very highly of him. And his impact and, and influence on modern Hollywood cannot... I would say, be overestimated. Mm. Robert Evans, who passed away this week at the age of 89. Okay, should we have our second and final guest this week? Let's do it. And if I look at the guest Tombola, I see that there's only one name in there, and that is Felicity Jones. Hurrah, what a name. <laughs> it's a great name. Yeah. And uh, we're very, very excited. Felicity Jones, of course, is the star of Chalet Girl and some other films, I believe, that <laughs> followed along after that. But Chalet Girl really is theory, the one for theory me. Theory of everything, not worth a mention, maybe, Chris? No, just just Chalet Girl. You're sticking with that one. Theory of everything doesn't ring doesn't a bell. Ring a bell. No, okay. I mean, Chalet Girl is great. It's, it's one of my favorite, my sister's favorite films. It's a so. good film. Mm-hmm. It's a good film. I don't think she's been anything else. I think I think she's been in a few things actually. Yeah, I'm she, pr- pretty she, sure she's made made some she other in? movies. What's she been in? Well, she did make you know Star Wars Rogue One. I feel no, like that, that was that was Alan Tudyk. Also, Felicity Jones w- was in there. You can tell because her face is in it and on the poster. Oh, yeah. You're talking about Jin Erso. I am. Okay. Anyway, she's great. Yeah. She's in the theory of everything. That's where she first appeared alongside. Eddie Redmayne, sure. of course, and they rekindle that working relationship in The Aeronauts, Correct. which is about two people who decide to go hot air ballooning. Yes, it's, for, it's for science. way more exciting than it sounds. <laughs> and that film is out Monday. We'll be talking about it in the review section. It's directed by Tom Harper. And we sent in Freer along to have a good old natter with Listy Jones about a great many things, but presumably mainly The Aeronauts. Sure. Again, I haven't heard the interview. I hope it's good. It might be a car crash. But here we go. Lizzie Jones, she's awesome. Infrared's awesome. Enjoy. Felicity Jones, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. I checked our records. I believe this is the third time you've been on the Empire Podcast. Yes, I think yeah. you deserve a medal for that. Or oh, some kind good. Of... No, I'm a big fan of Empire, so yeah. happy to be back. And are you a big fan of podcasts? Do you have time to listen to podcasts? Yeah, I'm sort of getting into podcasts. I've been doing so many today that I feel like I'm missing out on something. Okay. I, do you know what? I'm a bit on behind on this. How do I actually get hold of a podcast? Because every time someone's like, this is a great podcast, and I say, how do I actually get them? You just get them from an app. Is yeah, that you right? Yeah, from an app or from, uh, from, from the Apple Store. There's, okay. There's tons of places. Oh, you can, perf- yeah. perfect. Just have a Google, any subjects you want, there'll be a brilliant podcast. Okay, brilliant. So yeah. I'll type in Empire <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here to talk about the aeronauts. I thought the aeronauts was a bit like gravity 
if it was set in the Victorian London. Is that fair? Oh, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I loved about the film is that it is, it's a set in, you know, in, in the past. It's a period drama, but it is incredibly modern. And, and by the end, actually, you hopefully don't care where the people are from or, or, or what, what time they were living in because you're just so caring about their survival. Yeah. And you're Amelia Wren. Tell us about Amelia Wren. So Amelia Wren is a bit of a wild cat. Uh, <laughs> she is um, based partly on a woman called Sophie Blanchard, who was a 18th century aeronaut. She was a French aeronaut and she was one of the first women to fly solo. And she used to okay. love flying her balloon, her specially designed balloon, very late at night in the dark and would set off fireworks for entertainment. Amazing. Yeah. She's very much a, a demonstrative show kind of person, isn't she? Exactly. And, yeah. that, and that came from the uh, Blanchard person because she realized that in order to make some money from doing this she had to put on a bit of a show yeah. at the takeoff you know because everyone knows what's about to happen so how do you sort of draw it out and and sell tickets and so at the beginning of the film that's what Amelia's doing you know yeah. she's she's drawing in the crowds it's to make some exciting money. scientific experiment you can imagine isn't it it is yeah, yeah definitely yeah. definitely it's an adventure yeah and before the movie had you ever been in a hot air balloon no, I never before. And it was one of those things I always wanted to do. And then now having made the film, I never want to go and balloon ever again. Okay. I've been scarred why, deeply. Why did you say that? Because I've done, I've done it once. Yeah. And um, the landings are hairy, which you never get the sense of because you get it as beautiful and airy and stuff. But the landings are quite scary. Well, that's what's what you have this wonderful takeoff and particularly in a gas balloon that is, you know, once you put the gas in there and you do it up, there's it's pretty noiseless. It's very peaceful. It's not like a hot air balloon where you have that the sound of the of the the flames and then you sort of have this very gentle ascent and it's beautiful and you're looking at the view and you know they have this tradition where if it's your first flight they'll take up a bottle of champagne and you'll have a nice glass of champagne when you're up there so it's all really lovely but then when you come to land I mean suddenly it changes and um, it's yours slightly terrifying yours was particularly scary yeah I mean yeah. we had two crash landings and there's nothing prepares you for it you kind of just I mean the pilot kind of shouts hold on and you just hold on for dear life and, and hope for the best yeah because you can't predict where you're going to land yeah and it's a very for you it's a very physical role isn't it it is the, yeah, the, yeah what are the kind of challenges of that well it's one of the most grueling parts I've ever had um and and that's you know yeah. why that was the challenge of wanting to take yeah. it on was and you've been in Star Wars <laughs> absolutely I know that that sort of was almost um pleasurable in comparison <laughs> But that was sort of where I got the appetite really for doing another action film was from playing Jin Erso and then thinking, oh gosh, I'd love to come back and, and do this again. So, um, and this was the perfect opportunity. You know, it is, she's a real action heroine, Amelia Wren. Yeah. So you're paired with Eddie Redmayne again after Theory of Everything. When journalists talk about actors working together, they always like to use the phrase shorthand. Is that something that journalists dream up or is that something you... Uh, No, I I think that's pretty accurate. I think you do. I think you you cut out all the polite stuff and you don't tiptoe around each other and you don't say, oh, that was great, when you don't mean it. Is you, <laughs> you get straight to the truth of the matter and that definitely is a shorthand. I think because we'd built up so much trust from doing Theory of Everything, yeah. we then felt like we were safe with each other and that we could take risks and you could say straight out if something didn't feel like it was working and the other person would listen. And how, how do you kind of look back on your Theory of Everything experience? Was it amazing? Uh, it was, it was. It was interesting, you know, in the way that Aeronauts was very physically gruelling. I think 
um, theory of everything was quite emotionally uh, yeah. a bit of an emotional marathon so in a, in a way they're sort of weird partners to each other <laughs> very different films but they're both about exploring extremes and, and I think that's yeah. what Eddie and I are attracted to in, yeah. in both films so I, I guess kind of making the film you'll have spent a lot of time in a very confined space together what do you talk about Oh, you know, you just have Has nice chats. Yeah, Has he got yeah. Good bands? Great bands. <laughs> Great bands. Well, that's also the other thing, you know, as well as wanting to do good work, you also want someone you have a bit of a nice chat to, yeah. you know, in between. There's a lot of hanging around when you're on set. So we always have a good old sort of gossip and, and a catch up. And then it's all like, oh, quick, get back. We're going to do next take. Yeah. Um, so that's a huge part of it. And I mean, that's why it's fun working with your friends. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but. One thing I thought was refreshing about the film was that it's not in any way a romantic relationship. Is that fair? Is it, yeah, I mean, I, I How always... How would you describe the dynamic between yeah, the two? Yeah, I think um, I always saw it that there is romance at some point. You might not see it okay. in, in the film, but I think, there is a, I think they are learning to love. I think there's the beginnings of something and that, yeah. that person is helping the other recover from the demons of their past. Yeah. But, but I, you know, I'm a bit of a softie. I hope that they do get together eventually. <laughs> it's not explicitly spelled out, is it? It's not. Yeah. No, no, no. And there were a lot of discussions about how much we make it a romance. And, and we even had a kiss at the end okay. in the basket when they take off. And because there was throughout the shooting, we did, we didn't know how much to push it. And I think Tom wanted to make sure he had the options in the yeah, edit. This is Tom Harper. The Tom, Tom Harper, yeah. the director. And, um, and, and then when he put it together, he said it just didn't feel right. They, the kiss kept going in and out apparently, um, <laughs> <laughs> as it does. Uh, yeah. And it just didn't feel like it needed it at the end. Yeah. The other thing it's very lightly about, it doesn't hit you over the head with this. It's a film about a woman kind of, finding a way in a society that's male dominated is mm. that is that fair it's, it's, again it's not a heavily stated theme is it but it's in there yeah i think it's implicit i think it's also that she's pushing against the conventions of of what's expected of her yeah and i think that interestingly is coming from men and women yeah you know that they don't like that she doesn't conform to what they want her to do that she's a maverick she's an outsider she she wants different things and that's what you feel is is to do what she loves doing she is having to reject a lot of what other people want for her there's a nice edit where Amelia's up in the balloon and it cuts back to her sister in that amazing blue dress going towards the window and her and her aunt are sitting in this sort of drawing room environment and you realize what it has taken for Amelia to get to that point what she is pushing against you know yeah. the sort of stay at home and wear a nice dress <laughs> yeah. yeah I wonder if I could sort of take you back to the kind of the beginning of your career when you started what is your kind of experiences of auditioning? Were you a good auditioner? Did you hate auditions? T tell me about that. Oh, I used to... I, it takes me ages to learn lines. I right. mean, it's it's not something that I do overnight. So it was a real struggle for years. I used to hate it. And sometimes you'd get sent, you know, you get sent six scenes and you'd have a day and a half to learn them. And then, yeah. you know, I'd be so diligent at the beginning and I'd be dutifully learning everything. And then by the end, I just thought you know what, I'm going to learn two scenes and learn them as best I can yeah. um, and go in and do those well and, and they'll have to, do, <laughs> have to take what they've got. And have you got any particular horror stories you can remember? Um, 
Oh, sometimes just, in, I think there's a lot of just being terribly embarrassed being an actor and you kind of have to, yeah. you have to get used to that. But, <laughs> but you go in, you know, and you're being asked to do all sorts of fun. I remember something I auditioned for was a witch behind bars and I had to sort of have some sort of exorcism um, as she was in this witch prison. <laughs> you just feel like an absolute idiot i mean you know and then it's filmed and you have no idea really who's watching it you know in those early days it's that relationship between you and the casting director and it's i was lucky that casting directors took a punt on me because they're the people who you know are the gatekeepers it's weird that there's some actors who feel that doing an audition in some ways helps prove yourself that you can do the part is that is is there anything in that yeah i think so actually and it's 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 a strange thing because when you know for certain things you don't have to audition which is obviously feels a very sort of privileged place to be but in doing the audition it's a little bit of the preparation is you get you get the muscle and you work out what you're going to do a little bit and it actually does give you a lot of confidence Yeah, yeah you definitely it's a different way into it when you're coming at it without having that auditioning process definitely and what do you consider your kind of big break I guess I, it's kind of incremental, isn't it? There's it different is, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting. I feel like you just take loads of punts okay. on loads of things. And then what you're... I remember with my agent, we'd talk about... Um, and I've been with my British agent, you know, from 18. And we'd sort of talk about... It's about something popping. And it's sort of when it, you know, when it pops that obviously gives you an enormous amount of leverage within the industry because people know who you are and then you have a bit more sort of authority over the decisions that you're making. So, uh, but in the early days, you're just trying anything and everything and see what hits. Because I wonder that if you're, I was thinking, I was looking at your your career and um, I saw the film Like Crazy, which is a beautiful, lovely little film that that sadly missed Anton Yelchin. Mm. And I just wondered, can you make a small film like that anymore? Um, Are you at a level where that's very hard to step back and do something that that kind of intimate and small? No, I think you get you feel the need to do that. I think you sort of you can sometimes get a little bit too uh, too trying to design a career, and it never works like that because you never right. know what's going to hit, what's going to work, what isn't. And actually, more and more, you just think you have to go back to taking risks. Yeah. So I think the more you work and the more the older you get, the more you have to go back and do that really anarchic, strange, weird things where there's no pressure. Yeah. I think it's really important. I think that's when people reinvent themselves to a certain yeah. extent. But I guess in some ways for you, Star Wars is a bit of a reinvention, wasn't it? It was being in action, in genre, in... Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. And I I was just really lucky to be... Because there'd been, you know, certain projects that I'd looked at that were of that scale, but not the right part. And so when Star Wars came along, it was unbelievable that I got to play such a brilliant female lead. And it felt like a no-brainer to do it. You know, I was ready to do something of that of that scale because at the same time doing things on that size it helps you to do smaller films you know this is what our actors often say it enables you to pivot because obviously then people can get the finance to make these smaller stories yeah i guess um since the film come out there's lots of stories about how the director was replaced there was lots of filming of different scenes how did it feel to you did it did what was it feeling from the inside um well, I think those kind of films, they're just, you know, 
They're enormous. There's yeah. so many people involved. They are absolute juggernauts. So when you sign up for them, that sort of comes with the territory, really. So right. you sort of get on with it. Yeah. Interestingly, with with Rogue One, we were able to make it almost like um like an independent film. You know, yeah. there was a lot of sort of Gareth Edwards called it, you know, 360 degree shooting and very long takes. And, yeah. and it was very experimental. And that DNA is, I think, what makes the film so wonderful. Yeah. I guess I guess one of the nice upshots of doing a movie like that is that you meet lots of little Ginnersos when you're, when you're out and about or at conventions. Or yeah, literally dressed up as Ginnersos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. It's sort of funny to think about that side of things and but you, you do you haven't really embraced that side have you that kind of that there's a whole world of star wars fandom that you don't you can yeah i mean know. i have i have been and been to conventions and it's always thrilling i mean star wars is a religion that's what you realize yeah. it is it has its own language its own rules it, it is and it is incredibly exciting to be a part of you get an absolute buzz so whenever I have um, been involved in, in in those events, it's really thrilling. Yeah, and if you were going to point to a film on your in your CV that people might not have seen that you love, where would you go to? Uh, Shally Girl. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's always on TV. I see that a lot oh, on TV. Good. Yeah, I'm on, British, on British TV. Oh, good. Was that so much fun? Yeah, it was just. A, it was just. I actually had a lovely time making it. Yeah. And sometimes when you have a good time making something, it's absolute rubbish. <laughs> it's like everyone was far too comfortable and <laughs> having too nice time. But with that, it's just. A, it was lovely to play such a kind of upbeat character and yeah, some and to do do a bit of comedy is always fun. And. Am I right in thinking it was set in Austria? Was it shot in Austria? It was, yes. So we we shot it in, I'm trying to think now, um, St. Anton right. uh, for some of it and Garmisch Pattenkirchen, which is in Bavaria okay. for some of the other stuff. But yeah, a lot. I mean, all those exteriors are in St. Anton. Right. And how was your snowboarding? Well, I thought I went, <laughs> I went back a year or so ago and I thought I'm going to be brilliant. <laughs> because of doing the film and then yeah. I got on a, snow, um, on a snowboard and it was disastrous it was like I was trying to ice skate or something I yeah. couldn't stand up for more than two seconds I kept falling over but in my head I was this brilliant snowboarder but it didn't translate <laughs> didn't to reality <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of had to start again with the basics yeah it's weird I've never met you before but I, I've seen you I was on a set visit to Inferno Oh, yes. In the Vatican, in, Vatican City, I think. In Italy. Yeah, yeah. 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 And there was a lot of running. I think you were being chased by drones at that point. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> there was a lot. Yeah. We, spent, we spent about three weeks being chased <laughs> okay. by, dro- by that blooming <laughs> drone. Oh, my God. I remember running around. We were running around Florence, I think, yeah. I think at one point. And then and I was in these enormous heels that were really difficult to run in. Exactly. Screenwriter, or, or film directors and screenwriters never get that, do they? The, the, the heels thing. No, exactly, exactly. I don't know why I willingly chose to wear heels as that character. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was, um, that was good fun, actually. But I do remember there was a lot of Tom and I just looking up at, yeah. at the sky in a yeah. distracted way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
love fun and games. And next up, I believe, is a George Clooney movie, or is that just on IMDb and it's not happening? No, is, yes, yeah. that is. That um, uh, I'm actually starting that, start shooting that in January. Okay. Um, can we say anything about that? Uh, yeah, it's going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I mean, it's all space themed, isn't it? Yeah, it's called Good Morning Midnight. And, um, and George it is, Clooney's directing George it. George Clooney's directing it and also starring in it. Right. And I am too. <laughs> okay. That's as much as I am saying. Thank you so much. That's great stuff. Thanks uh, very much. Good luck with the aeronauts. Lovely. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Cheers. So that was Felicity Jones, Jin Erso herself. There uh, you go. Talking to Ian Freer. <laughs> and uh, should we talk about the aeronauts? I haven't seen it yet, but yeah. you have, and it's out on Monday, so should people go see it? Um, I think there are many good things about this film. Um, I like, generally speaking, I like both Jones and Redmayne. I think they're charming, individually or together. And this is an interesting bit of history. So basically, um, he plays a young scientist who's trying to prove that with the right information, you can essentially predict, you can forecast weather. Um, and you can make informed predictions about what the weather might be like. And so he's trying to convince the scientific community that this is worth doing. And in order to do that, he he persuades this aeronaut, who's played by Felicity Jones, to take him up to unprecedented heights to basically find out what happens, mm-hmm. you know, 8,000 metres above the ground kind of thing. And that's the setup. So she has um, had a personal loss. She's a widow. Um, she's basically getting back into the balloon following that tragedy and is dealing with her own personal stuff. He's obviously dealing with this desperate need to prove himself and prove his theories. And the film, as they are in the balloon going up, you know, trying to, because they don't know what's going to happen. They have no idea what the air's like as high as they're going. So they're kind of exploring basically and kind of um, pioneering and they have to deal with various problems, mostly to do with freezing, that happen as a result. Eddie Redmayne's forgotten his coat. It's a disaster. The problem for me with this film is it keeps cutting away from them in the balloon Uh to flash back to what got them there. And almost all of those scenes are a bit boring, and I didn't really care so much. So (laughs) just every time they were on the ground, instead of feeling grounded, it just felt lead-footed. Um, and I was a little bit frustrated that it didn't match up to the kind of the excitement of the hot air balloon ride. And I can understand why they did it because, you know, it's hard to make a good venture out of somebody soaring in the air in a hot air balloon when, you know, there's no sort of sense of speed. They're not having a dog fight with anybody up there. You know, mm-hmm. it's maybe some birds, but that's about it. So there, there's maybe not enough there to feel like they, they have a film. But I, I just find that a little bit disappointing. Um, but it's beautifully put together. The ballooning scenes are wonderful. The one thing I would say is if you read up on the actual history of this, you will find that Redmayne's character was well over 50 and already yes. president of about three different royal societies and when she he was went man. up. And she was a man. Yes. And I, I get that, you know, we're gender swapping to try and, you know, introduce something into it. But I, it, it's... It's one of those things where I feel like the real person maybe could have done with... It's not like it's a composite character that you can turn into a woman. It's a specific guy that they've replaced with, with her. I agree, and Helen. I thought that was a bit of a shame. Men are overlooked and they need to be think, in more movies. I don't think that was my point. But um, anyway, so I yeah. I wasn't a I huge you, fan. Sister. I wasn't a huge fan, but I, I do think it's mostly well made. I just thought that this story needed a bit of zhuzhing. All right. But Ian Freer... Oh, yeah. For it is he... Disagrees. Oh. And he wrote the official Empire Review and he thought it was well nice and gave it four stars. I mean, it is well nice. I will give him that. <laughs> it's well nice. That's his verdict. Well nice. <laughs> four stars then for the aeronauts. Next up, should we go to Netflix? Let's do it. Two Netflix films because there's The King, uh, which is out today on Netflix and has been out 
in fairness, around the country in select cinemas for the last couple of weeks as well. And then there's Dolomite Is My Name, mm. which is a movie I was tremendously excited about, and they just kind of went, here you go. <laughs> it's out. And I, it ta- caught me completely by surprise. I thought it was out in November. So Dolomite Is My Name, which is the return of Eddie Murphy. Yeah. It's the return of Eddie Murphy, and it's fantastic, and it's going to be in the Oscar race, I would hope, as well. And he's certainly been doing the rounds for it. And he's been back on the interview circuit for the first time in years, Mm. decades maybe even, actually talking about himself and his career and his work. And uh, I just felt that that maybe it needed more of a kind of build up of a release than just kind of, oh, it's out. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Here's Dolomite is my name, which is the the story of Rudy Ray Moore, who is an American comedian in the 1970s, who Eddie Murphy idolized one of the reasons why he wanted to make this movie and how he ended up making a series of exploitation flicks. Yeah. About a character called Dolomite. Yeah. It's written by Larry Karasuski and Scott Alexander, who are the guys who wrote Ed Wood and The People versus Larry Flint and, you know, who are really, really good at slightly absurd biopics. A Man in the Moon as well yeah. was there as well. So they're really, really good guys and Craig Brewer directed it as well. And clearly he got on well enough with Eddie Murphy to direct Coming to America, which is out next year. So that's the basic setup. Mm. I've said it already. It's fantastic. It's very, very funny. Yeah. What did you think? I thought it was really charming. I thought it reminded me how good Eddie Murphy was. Not that I'd oh. like, totally forgotten, but do you know what I mean? Like, it just felt like Eddie Murphy to his... Yeah, it just felt like Eddie Murphy to his bones. And, and it felt like I could see the the influence of, of Rudy Ray Moore, of Dolomite on yeah. his work. It just felt really kind of warm-hearted and, and good-natured in some ways. Um, but edgy also. But edgy There's also, not yeah, not without not without a bit of bite to it, yep. but just in, in the sense of a, 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 a group of very disparate, very sometimes odd people, uh, certainly down on their luck people, kind of coming together and doing this yeah. this crazy thing together. I just find it really, really charming. It's it's a little bit slow paced. I would yep. maybe say I don't think this, this is not a film that rushes into its story. But it's just really likable and and really plays to, I think, everybody's strengths. And what a cast around him. You've got Wesley Snipes. Mm -hmm. You've got Craig Robinson. Kobe Smith-McPhee is their cinematographer. Keegan-Michael Key. Keegan-Michael Key, my God. Mm -hmm. Really, really good people. Bob Odenkirk turning up, you know. Great, great people around him, um, and as it should be, because if you are Eddie Murphy and you're deciding to make your first serious film in a while... Everybody should come out. The Although it's not a serious film, we should. Sorry, we, no, we should, but you know, his first yeah, R-rated film, his yes. first non-kind of family film in, in a or long even, time, or even just basically his first film in ages. Yeah. His last film was Mr. Church, which was a Bruce Beresford film, which came out a few years ago. And and good luck to you if you knew that it came out because it was again, it was like, hey guys, Mr. Church is out. I'm not even sure it got a theatrical release over here. I don't think it I did. I don't think it did. Um, it may not even be out over here. That's I don't think I don't recall seeing it anymore. I'm sure it's on iTunes and whatnot, mm. but. Before that, if you have to go back, I'm just going to quickly look at Eddie Murphy, which I've somehow managed to spell wrong. Uh, and now look at Audie Murphy, who's a completely different Murphy. Very different person. A very different Murphy. Fascinating guy. Great Definitely story. worth reading about. Read uh, about Audie Murphy, people. Absolutely. Um, but let me see. So Dolomite is my name. Mr. Church, three years before that. Then he appeared in the pilot for the Beverly Hills Cop TV show that was uh, mm-hmm. short-lived. Before that, his last film was A Thousand Words, uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. Which was also kind of dumped a little bit. It, yeah, a little bit. Although it was quite charming. And then there's a Tower Heist, 2011, Shrek Forever After, Imagine That, 
that's a charming film. Mm. Um, the Calamity That Was Me Today in 2008. Basically, the point is, Norbert 2007, mm. uh-oh. The point is, he hasn't made a lot of films in recent years. He's stepped away from the limelight somewhat and it's great to have him back because he's Eddie Goddamn Murphy. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely check this out. Yeah, it's fantastic. Check it out. Dolomite Is My Name is on Netflix right now. And also on Netflix right now is The King. Yeah, so this is kind of the Henry V story stripped of all its Shakespeareanness, most of its Shakespeareanness at least. Um, they've added in a little bit of history that wasn't really in it before and taken out a little bit of history that was factual and put in some made-up stuff instead. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a mixed bag. This is an odd one because I love Timothy Chalamet and I'm going to rave about him more in a few weeks uh, when we talk about Little Women. But not in this movie? But not, he, he was oddly cast at least in the beginning of this movie because he is a surly little bastard at the beginning of this movie but, and that weirdly doesn't play to his strengths moody and brooding 100% surly for some reason sits really oddly with think? him yeah I think he's quite surly in Ladybird. yes he is but he's more broody <laughs> anyway, it's a fine distinction but I honestly I feel like it exists um, so I find him a little bit better in the second half of the film than the first there's some historical things that are made up that I didn't love in this I can see what they were going for but you know sometimes a, some, a story is a classic for a reason and maybe you could have stuck a little bit closer to it um, and then there are some very odd choices like for example Robert Pattinson's French accent what do you mean? Listen. I will taunt you a second time. <laughs> Listen very carefully. I will say yeah. this far too many times. Good morning. And it will get worse <laughs> as I go. Um, I chicken out. I, I, I chicken out of asking um, <laughs> David Michaud what the hell was up with Robert Pattinson's accent. I mean, look, I love Robert Pattinson. I think he's a genuinely gifted actor, but I, I didn't think he was maybe at his best here. I hope he uses that voice for the Batman. <laughs> I hope amazing. that's I hope that's his Batman voice. Oh my god, that would be great. Who are you? I'm the Batman. But yeah, it's it's a it's an odd one. Um, at times, it feels a bit Brexit the movie, um, which doesn't help either. But wow, I, you're really selling this. <laughs> but it is, I think it's actually meant to do something else because it's actually talking about this this guy who starts off as a pacifist and gets more and more sucked into war mm. by playing on exactly these kind of xenophobic fears. And I think it's meant very much as a sort of a let's all come together and not do this kind of thing anymore kind mm. of a film, but it doesn't always work as such. So mm. I can see what they're going for. I think it's a really interesting film, but it didn't 100% work for me. Yeah, I, I, I did like this. I thought it was, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very gritty. It's very down to earth. It's one of those movies that, uh, that wants you to feel as if it was actually filmed in the ye olde times. Uh, so it's very, very cold. It's very austere at times as well, but it's got a great cast. I like Chalamet. I do have a criticism of the film. As I think that it skips far too quickly past his Prince Hal phase, the mm -hmm. sort of louche playboy yeah. phase. But then it's so much story to cover. Yeah, this is it's not an adaptation per se of the Shakespeare plays, but if yeah. it if it were, it's basically condensing three plays into a two hour yeah. movie. Which, by the way, can I just say they call the Henriad, which I love. Do you know, this is really interesting. I've interviewed a number of Australian people on the podcast, mainly Ben Mendelsohn and David Michaud, in mm -hmm. fact, and they, I don't know whether this is an Australian thing. I, mean, I know we have a lot of Australian listeners. So do let us know. Kieran Lee, I'm sure, who is very vigilant and is always correcting me, will probably point out whether this is an Australian thing or not. But they don't say Henry V. They say Henry V. And mm. that throws me. That's weird. <laughs> That's just weird as far as I'm concerned. 
but not weird in Australia. Hey, respect. Well, the water goes in the other direction and there's loads of things that can kill you. <laughs> okay. So let, write it in. Let me know. Let me know if that is a thing that you guys do in Australia. But I thought it was really well acted, good battle scenes, great cast as well. And I have to say, I talked. we didn't talk about Robert Pattinson's accent with David Michaud, but we did talk about Joel Edgerton's accent mm. because he plays Falstaff as a Yorkshireman. Yes, his, his accent's good, I thought. Really good. Yeah. Really, really good. So perhaps if they ever remake American Werewolf in London, <laughs> he could be the doctor who goes, hey, this man's been bitten by a werewolf. Get him down to that London. Yeah, except he'd probably do it in a good Yorkshire accent. What? Um, yeah, Fuck no. you. Can I just uh, re- uh, re- agree with you about the battle scenes? Because I thought they were pretty darn good. And uh, if you're going to do Agincourt, you have to, you know, do it right. And I thought right. that they, they got that pretty good, pretty spot on. Lots of longbows. Lots of longbows. This man's been bitten by a whippet. Get him down to London. <laughs> I'm still not convinced that they did that sort of weird lunge thing you see in the trailer in their plate armour. But, you know, apart from that. I'm, Never lunge in plate armour. I feel like that should be a it's thing. It's uncomfortable. Like, things it would, would come loose. Yeah, things would like rub against other things, you yeah. know. There's lots of chafing. I, I want to see a historical movie that explores chafing and friction in in armour. <laughs> Golly, that yes. sounds quite rude. Chafing and friction would also be a great name for a detective duo, don't you think? Anyway, four <laughs> stars. Four stars for The King, uh, which is on Netflix. And last week on the show, we had Gillian Bell, who is the star of Britney yes. Runs a Marathon. And uh, Helen, who has run many marathons, including mm-hmm. yet another one in the interim. Yeah, it was hell. In. Uh, it was. It sounded awful, didn't it? It's, it was yeah, hell. <laughs> really tough. Up and down mountains and fails and all sorts. Anyway, what's the film like? The film is... <laughs> which is on Netflix. <laughs> not Netflix, no. which is on Amazon Prime. Is it? Yes. No, it's in cinemas as well. And cinemas, but also yeah. on Amazon okay. as well. Yeah, so Britney Runs a Marathon is um, pretty good, I thought. Um, so it's uh, the story of this girl who goes to the doctor. She's actually trying to get Adderall, which is a drug meant to treat ADHD, but it's also used by people as a sort of a recreational drug, which people shouldn't what? do. Don't abuse drugs, kids. Winners don't do drugs. That's right. So um, so she's trying to get a, a prescription from her doctor for that, and instead he basically tells her that she's dangerously overweight and needs to lose 40 pounds. And when she finds out how much it costs to join a gym in Manhattan, where she lives, or in New York, where she lives, um, she decides to go running outside instead, which is considerably cheaper, at least until you get addicted and then you start spending money on all the race <laughs> entries. But let's, you know, brush that aside for the moment. But it's basically the running becomes a facet of of her realising that she is not happy in her life and it, it becomes a catalyst for her making some other changes that she probably needs to make. And then that throws things into chaos a little bit, you know. So she makes new friends through running, um, but she also finds some of her old friendships kind of challenged by it. You know, she's been the fun, lazy one who makes all the jokes and stays out all night and goes drinking. But what? how does that friendship now survive as she's going home early and saying, no, I'm not going to have a drink, I'm running in the morning. Mm-hmm. It, so it kind of challenges a lot of the way that not only she saw herself, but that other people saw her. What I think is really good about this film is it... Um, it doesn't make her a saint. It doesn't make her a sort of straightforwardly inspirational figure, as Gillian Bell talked about last week. Mm-hmm. She kind of messes up and is incredibly hurtful and rude to people as she goes. She takes out her own pain on the people around her. Um, she's a mess. Sounds more like Helen runs a marathon. Am I right? Hey. Am I right? Remind hey. you of anyone? Hey, what? Oh, I forgot you were here. Sorry. Um, but no, but she she does like she messes up hugely on on many many occasions in this film. But at the same time, she kind of keeps at it, and there's something very inspirational about that. My my main criticism of this because I wrote the review. My mm-hmm. main criticism was even despite that, it sometimes does still feel like 
running's a bit of a panacea. Like, you know, it's the, just the fact that they connect running to her sorting other things in her life out makes it feel like, oh, if you just go for a jog, then everything, everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. I know from experience that ain't Exactly. Is, that yeah. isn't it? And so I, I feel like sometimes it overplays how bad running is when you start and also how great running is when you get better at it. And mm. I, so I feel like there's a little bit, maybe too much contrast there. But generally speaking, I thought Gillian was fantastic. And it does try to introduce a little bit of complexity into those things. I would maybe, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I would maybe say it's a bit of a trigger warning for people with body issues because there's a lot of her internalised self-hate about her size and about her body that kind of is expressed in the film. And so if that's something that you struggle with, maybe this may not be the film for you. All right. So three stars then for Empire Magazine. Uh, Empire Magazine's Which is Helen very O'Hara. Much, yeah, it is very much a recommendation. That was a very high three stars, I have it, to say. It is a recommendation indeed. And it is in cinemas this weekend. I believe it's actually on Amazon Prime in a couple of weeks' time. Cool, but cool. Uh, do check it out. It is an Amazon original movie. So, so check it out if you don't fancy leaving the comfort of your sofa, which would be directly against the message of the movie. <laughs> yes, but you know, also running's great. And, and even if my latest race was hell, my yeah. next one may not be. What's your next one? Um, it's a Remembrance Day marathon in about a week and a half. Jesus, I don't know how you do it. I really don't. Anyway, three stars then for Britney Runs a Marathon. And last but not least this week, we have Doctor Sleep. Yes, no, I, ha- I haven't seen this one, so you, you need to tell me this. all about it because I do plan to see it. All right. I'm glad you asked, Helen. Thank you for asking. Uh, Doctor Sleep. So this is uh, this is a sequel to The Shining. Yeah, based on the Stephen King novel, which was also a sequel to his novel of The Shining, correct? Yes, but it's also a sequel to The Shining, as in the Stanley Kubrick version. Ah. Of The Shining, which is interesting because the Stephen King novel is not a sequel that acknowledges the Stanley Kubrick version in any way, shape or form. Because as we all know, Stephen King famously does not like Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. It's a rare example of Stephen King being wrong. There are many examples of Stephen King being wrong when it comes to films and TV. Well, okay, that's true. I have to say, his taste is a little bit skew-if, shall we say. I love him. I'm a constant reader. Yep. I love him to bits. But yeah, I think he's I think he's wrong in this one. The Shining is an amazing film. And uh, so this is a sequel to it. And Mike Flanagan, who is the yeah. director of numerous horror movies, uh, including most recently, of course, Gerald's Game. So he has form in the Stephen King adaptation. Arena. Arena, thank yep. you. Uh, he has adapted this book and he has managed to somehow get the Kubrick estate and Stephen King to sign off on a movie Whoa. that does act as a continuation of... The Shining. Now, what I find really interesting about this movie is mm-hmm. that it isn't The Shining Part 2. Okay. Which seems contradictory, but allow me to explain. Please do. So this is based on the novel Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep is uh, the story of Danny Torrance, the young kid mm-hmm. from The Shining. Red rum, red rum, you know, all yep. that you know, stuff. Played by Danny Lloyd in the movie. And now he's grown up, he's all grown up, and he's played by Ewan McGregor as Danny in his... Early to mid forties, shall we say? Right. And uh, he has become over the years. He still has the the power of the shine. He can still see dead things. He still gets haunted occasionally by things that, that have followed him from the Overlook Hotel, Ooh. where, if you remember, uh, his father went famously kablooey. So, yeah. <laughs> shall we say, played of course by Jack Nicholson in that movie. And uh, he still gets haunted by these things. And so he has retreated, some might say, naturally and perhaps inevitably, given his father's own alcoholism, into the bottle. So, at the uh. beginning of this movie, he is at rock bottom, 
he does something in this movie in the very, very first few minutes which convinces him that he needs help. So he rocks up in a small town. There he is taken in by Cliff Curtis's local man uh, who recognises a fellow lost soul in Danny Torrance and so cleans him up gets him involved as a hospital orderly. Okay. And there the Dan Torrance uses his ability, his psychic abilities, to help people, old elderly people who are dying, to cross over. Okay. Essentially. That's good. So he becomes known as Doctor Sleep. Basically right. if he shows up in your room, then you know that chances are you aren't going to be sure around very much longer. But in a good way. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. not like pillow yeah. over the face. Not he's not he's not he's not quite doing that. There's also a psychic cat in there. But it kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. Meanwhile, there's also a young girl called Abra Stone, played by a wonderful newcomer called Kylie Curran, mm-hmm. who has the ability to shine unlike anybody else, including Danny Torrance. Oh. And the two of them begin a psychic communication. Meanwhile, <laughs> there is also a troop of psychic vampires called the True North, who, okay. as Infrared described, look like someone's gone to a Fleetwood Mac costume party that's the way they, they dress and they're led by Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat and they're, does she wear a hat? They, she does okay. and her name is Rose and they're baddens that, and they, they basically they go around and they prey on people who have the shine so they're after this little girl they're after the little girl uh, whose powers are almost beyond comprehension Whoa. and they can detect her even though they're, she's like thousands of miles away in Florida. So it becomes about can Danny Torrance, yeah. Dan Torrance now, and this young girl, Aberstone, can they team up despite their geographical dislocation sure. to fight off the evil Rose, psychic the vampires? And now at some point, as you saw in the trailer, yeah. that involves a visit to a location that we no. may know and love. The Overlook! The previous film. Mm. I don't want to tread too much into spoiler territory here. Uh, I don't think we're going to be doing a spoiler special on this because we weren't able to talk to Mike Flanagan, which is a real shame. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to do a spoiler special in this movie because, here's the thing, I really like this film. Mm. Uh, I, I wrote the Empire Review, I gave it three stars. If you read the Empire Review, you'll probably see that it's edging towards a four, and it probably is a four, if I'm honest with you. But uh, I also know that there are things in this movie, because <laughs> we've had this conversation, there are things in this movie that have rubbed certain people up the wrong way, and... Shining fans in particular are going to react. I can't predict how they'll react, but there are things that happen in this movie that I think might rub Shining fans up the wrong way. I know one in particular who did not like the film Mm. at all. It's it's really divided people. It really has. But what I really liked about this movie was the fact that Mike Flanagan is not just simply aping Stanley Kubrick here. There are moments in this movie where he does directly ape Stanley Kubrick, and you'll see why as well. But like the novel itself, this is not concerned with being The Shining Part Mm. 2. And by that, what I mean is The Shining itself is a study in madness. It's a study in claustrophobic terror. It is about the evil in our hearts and the evil uh, that buildings can soak up and then the psychic energy that they can throw out Mm. as well. Uh, So it's very much in in the... Hill House yeah, yeah. kind of Which of course Mike Flanagan also. As well. Indeed. Mike Flanagan yes, directed yeah. that for, for Netflix as well. What's interesting about that is that The Haunting of Hill House as well as being uh, a, a reflective uh, show as well, a very, very human show, it's a drama but it's also really, really scary. This yeah, is not really scary. scary. This oh, is not okay. scary. Do you think that's why people have been a bit divided on it? I think that's one of the reasons why people are divided mm. on it uh, because the, the Shining is a terrifying film. This 
it's almost as sometimes like Mike Flanagan is going out of his way not to be terrifying. There are still oh. some unsettling sequences. There's a really unsettling sequence involving uh, murder, which I won't give away. Red rum, red rum. But really, really unsettling violence at times. But uh, for me, this is more of a character study and it's about guilt and it's about reconnecting with the past and literally being haunted by ghosts of the past and trying to get past that and about trying to be a better person and uh, trying to leave a legacy as mm. well. And so I think it's a really, really lovely contemplative movie. That's a really, really nice character study. And then there's also some weird sort of sci-fi. It's more sci-fi than it is horror film for me. Uh, I really liked it. I, th- I, I, I thought it was very, very well acted. I think Ewan McGregor is, is solid. I think uh, Kylie Curran is a really interesting newcomer. Can't wait to see what she does next. It's literally her first film. And I think Rebecca Ferguson walks away with the movie. Uh, wow. She's she's Obvious. tremendous as Rose the Hat, uh, who is up there with, uh, I'd say, maybe Pennywise. Whoa. Uh, in sort of your king. She's very perky, jolly, but there's an edge to her as well. Ooh. And she's, she's just great. She steals every scene she's in. So, yes, qualified reaction this. I thought it was really, really good. It is not The Shining. I have to say that Mike Flanagan knows this. He knows he's not Stanley Kubrick and I think that's maybe another reason why this doesn't feel like The Shining. It's his own beast. It's not a masterclass in movie making like The Shining was but I think it's well worth your time. Give it a go. Awesome. I can't wait to see it. Three stars in. (laughs) After all that, three stars in for Dr. Sleep. I'd be really fascinated to see what you guys think. You might also be going, hey Chris, you said last but not least is Dr. Sleep which means what about Ken Loach's Sorry We Missed You? Well, sorry, we missed it. Yeah, Uh, sorry. We have not seen it. Helen and I have not seen it so we decided it's best that we tell you that it's out. Yes, we we both intended to see it and both basically missed the screening earlier this week as well as a couple of others. Uh, It's not that we don't think it's cinema. We do think it's cinema, okay? we just haven't had a chance Sorry. we do think it's an Empire Thinks of Cinema we gave it four stars and um, I think probably it could probably stand to have a couple more superheroes in it whoa I, I think that would take away from its cinemaness, Chris I don't know I just think in the background maybe just someone flying past <laughs> then I'd be way more on board but okay yeah I, it's fine it is cinema uh, but we will see it and we will review it on next week's show yeah but it, we gave it four stars four stars then for Ken Loach's Sorry We Missed You all right Sounds good to me. It does, which is a recommendation. It is very much a recommendation, even in these austere times. (laughs) Right, and that is it. Yes. Ooh, finally. That's oh, a bumper one. Sorry about that. Uh, so that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... Oh, we'll be joined by Chris. Roland Emmerich. Really? Yes. Cool. He's fun. Director of Midway, which is out next week. Cool. I think. And there may also be another guest knocking around somewhere as well, but I can't remember who it is. <laughs> Brilliant. You've really sold that to me. Honestly, I, this, I'm frankly amazed we got through this podcast without one of us hurting ourselves because this <laughs> is probably the least prepared I've been for a podcast in a long, long time. So my apologies to the listeners. I'm, I'm, I hope, I'm sure it didn't come across that we weren't prepared. No, no, no. Uh, this sounds really polished and professional. Uh, it won't happen again. We realize that you have other choices, including... His darker materials. Darker uh, materials. As I said. Okay. His yeah, darker materials. Darker. And of course, his darkest materials, the His Darker Materials fan <laughs> podcast as well, which uh, you should listen to definitely. That's one thing that will, yes. Anyway, but until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. It is goodbye from me. I am off to, quite frankly. You're off to read my supernatural piece in Pilot Magazine and discover how few nipples are really in the show. Isn't that right, Chris? The answer, Helen? 
is how many nipples are in your heart. <laughs> and if there are nipples in your heart, <laughs> please consult the GP. And if you're if you live in Yorkshire, don't worry about it. A doctor in London will see you fairly soon. We've established that. Thank you so much for listening. I'm off the collapse now. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.